Welcome to Game Brain, a board game podcast with Matthew Robinson's gaming group. I am your host, Tom Donnelly. Matty has officially moved into his new home. Yay! And while simultaneously caring for two children under the age of three. That game has a weight of 5.0 and very <laughs> low reviews. Uh, this is round four, extra turn. It's time for a very special episode of Game Brain. A week or so ago... Two of our Game Brain crew packed up and headed off to Dallas, Texas to experience the awe, the wonder, and the increasing sleep deprivation effects of BGG Con. So please welcome fellow BGG Connor Trey to the podcast. Hi, everybody. And the other person who went was Tom. Yeah. The, the third person. In case you didn't know that. Yeah. That, that was, was me. It was Tom. That was me. That was me. Too. For those who don't know, BGGCon is a strictly board gaming convention put on by the fantastic people over at Board Game geek runs from wednesday to sunday the week before thanksgiving week uh pretty much is that pretty much every year the, the week before thanksgiving week i think so and they now have like a spring version which is yep. more family friendly i think they have a cruise version of this con but it's bgg cruise all right send your donations too no just joking <laughs> one day he's gotta live in the dream one day um but Trey, you did not arrive on Wednesday for a Wednesday through Sunday con. You arrived the previous Sunday. Why was that? Well, um, <clears throat> for the past two years, uh, Tim Fowers, as well as I think uh, his partner in this, uh, Jeff Beck. Tim Fowers is one of our one of our esteemed uh, game brain. Uh, designers he's one of our favorite designers he does games like burgle brothers he does games like uh, paperback hardcover um now boarding yet yeah, now boarding and now sabotage oh, which we will be talking burgle about brothers today too. yeah uh tim tim is a friend tim's a very well-known very successful game designer doing his own thing publishing his own games uh so kind of you know doing it for himself in a way that uh, a lot of people sh are taking note of but uh, this is the second year of the tabletop network which they've done in the two days leading up to bgg con and the way to think about this is because I, I don't think it's any big secret but this is like a gdc for board gamers gdc being game designers conference which is the big video game conclave that uh, meets every year in san francisco so yeah think of you know people who are either you know making games or want to make games meeting and uh watching powerpoint presentations on all kinds of different subjects that are germane to board game design the industry you know both making it and kind of living it uh, in the board game world who were some of the big names that were there this year who who, who did you uh, sit down and listen to it was a fantastic lineup, and and here's here's the thing. What so if you're listening to the podcast, you're already showing you have a, a high level of interest in board games. So this is something that pretty much anybody listening to this could probably do if you're interested in. You do not have to be like an established board game designer in order to to go. Um, I arrived on Tuesday, and Tim was kind enough to let me basically attend attend Tuesday, and I have designed. You weren't supposed to say that. Nothing. 
Yeah. I mean, I didn't do, do I paid money. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. You definitely paid money. Uh, So they they did a bunch of presentations. I they uh, you can you can um, attend the conference virtually. There's a a much cheaper ticket you can buy to see all of the streams of the shows. But I think they will make those presentations available. You know, somewhere down the line. Again, kind of in the model of how GDC. Uh, does it, but okay. So some of the designers that were there, they had a fantastic lineup. Um, they had Martin Wallace. Love him. Love him. So you love him so much. And yet we never talked to him the entire weekend. We were too intimidated. We kept, we kept running into him. We kept, we had, we were having drinks next to him. I think three out of the four nights. He scares we us. Were there. Martin Wallace scares us. <laughs> uh, so we had, uh, Matt Leacock of Pandemic fame. We had Rob Davio, number of games, including Pandemic, uh, Legacy, Alan Moon, uh, creator of Ticket to Ride, uh, Elizabeth Car- Hargrave, uh, Wingspan, the big hit of 2018, I would say. 2019? Is it 2019? This is 2019. Okay. I, th- I thought it was 2018. Okay. But okay. Of recent memory, Wingspan, very large. Probably, break, probably the most break important out, game. Breakout game. Yes. The, the most important game of the last few years, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Cole Worley of Root and Pax Premier fame. Isaac Childress, Gloomhaven, number one game on BGG, was there. Uh, Nikki Valens, Eldritch Horror, Mansions of Madness, second edition. Eric Roos, Spirit Island fame, gave a talk, um, as well as the um, Ludology guys, uh, Gilhova, you know, who's designed the networks. Right. Talked as well as Jeff Engelstein, who's designed Space Cadets and has kind of moved away from uh, Ludology, but is still a big, big figure, I think, um, among designers as somebody who's looking at the mechanics and craft of board game design. He's got a new book um, on, you know, kind of uh, what uh, doing the taxonomy of all the different uh, mechanisms. In, yes. fact, in, in fact, so much so that they had to revise uh, BGG's, you know, mechanism uh, list kind of based upon his, his book, I would say. Which we brought up a, a few weeks ago. So uh, these famous game designers, you can pick them out of the crowd easily because they have the, the top hat and the tails. And <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that fair to say? Some of them have unique branding. <laughs> Tim, Tim has a hat. Tim Fowers has a hat. A leather pith helmet, would you say? Is that what it is? I think the, Tim's real brand is if his artwork has this great kind of, you know, spy look uh, to it or, sort of um incredibles yeah incredibles very 1950s yeah um, yeah ni- 1960s kind of smooth very it, it's very cool it's a very cool look for sure um i was lucky enough to just peek my head in a, a little bit and it was wonderful it, it was it was amazing i thought that some of the some of the lectures were uh, more on the intellectual academic side of it but some were very very practical uh, I th- I found those to be kind of inspiring in terms in terms of somebody that has never designed a game but kind of wants to start and and people giving some very very practical very great uh, tips like real mentorship I see I felt like right. happened there and they had an internship program running this year I think they provided internships for like ten different people to visit to could become part of the of the of the network who might not be able to afford to go otherwise so they are actively looking at mentoring. Uh, new people. That's fantastic. In the in the industry. It's also set up so that like in the mornings they do kind of like the big presentations that they know everybody's going to want to see and in the afternoon they break them up into stuff that's a little bit more specialized and you attend, you know, the one of the two or three things going on at the same time that that kind of captures your your interest and so it's kind of easier to miss 
on those, you know, like not everybody wants to go and see a lawyer do a presentation about intellectual property rights in the board game world, but that may have been like the most important thing that I attended. Room was packed. Um, if you are an actual, not that I am, if you are an actual board game designer, understanding intellectual property and what you own and what you have, to, what you should be protecting and what you can't protect and shouldn't right. worry about, like this is actually very important stuff. Right. And you cannot protect the mechanism. Unless you're Wizards of the Coast. In right. which case you... You, you, you claim because you're so big. No, you claim you probably can't defend it, but you can you can fight it. There have also been uh, the I forget the lawyer's name who um, I, I'll look it up who who did this presentation. But the law is also kind of inconsistent on some of this stuff, so it's not exactly a complete hard and fast rule on a lot of these things. It, the problem being, of course, that in the board gaming world, nobody has the deep enough pockets to really fight these things if somebody thinks that they have a good case. So you have to be. Right, you have you have to basically be working from the area of I think this is the safest thing to do. Yeah, you shouldn't necessarily. Right. I think one of the the classic kind of thing you tell a new board game designer is don't don't worry about people stealing your idea. Like that's not really a thing. A, Correct. you can't protect it, and B, it, people don't really do it. There's a few kind of classic cases where it has happened, but like there's nothing you can do about it and it tends to be more like they made a game in China it's the exact same game not unlike screenwriting i very the, the the times when somebody actually steals a, a screenplay is vanishingly rare in comparison to the uh, the number of people and people tend to be a little too precious beginning writers tend to be a little too precious right. and and hide their ideas a little too much right like you get over yourself a little bit just just make just make a good game but there is some stuff that you like you do want to protect the title of the game you do want to protect the artwork you do want to write your contracts in the right way and so sure. that you know uh how you get your game back if you're unhappy with your publisher and they do bad things with it over the first couple of years like how you know what what are the actual terms for you know getting your game back uh, and what and what do they have to do in order to fulfill their side of the contract so it's it was an interesting it, uh, there were a lot of interesting subjects. That that was one. I think uh, Elizabeth Hargrave did one that I thought was really fantastic, where she looked at the data of women gaming, women in gaming, women in board games. That's great. Uh, you know, just in terms of like where women actually are, as far as like what games women like, uh, and just trends. You know, not not making any like hard and fast rules about like what women. Like, but you know, the, the cross section of female gamers is different in terms of the types of games that they like. Sure. And, you know, clearly she understood these lessons in making Wingspan, you know, a game that has appealed to all kinds of gamers, but a huge, a huge spread, spread, but especially, right especially women. In fact, I think the, uh, the title of her, um, talk was something like, um, my wife loves your game. <laughs> and she's both happy and tired of hearing that that's great like why isn't your wife here you You're know right. like why am i always talking to the wife what? of the person i mean the husband of the person who loves my game fair enough fair enough that's great so but she did a powerpoint she made uh, there's actual link to the whole presentation on her twitter so if you if this there's a lot of good research she did if you were interested in looking at a, like a cross-section of women in board gaming Go to Elizabeth Hargrave's Twitter, and she has linked to her presentation there, and it's definitely worthwhile taking a look at. So you were there uh, Monday for for Tabletop Network. You were there for Tuesday, and I arrived just in time to join you for lunch with five people that I had never met, but you had gotten to know through uh, through the uh, Tabletop Network. And I sat right across from a guy named Ricky Tata. 
And Ricky Tata was the designer of Koo, who I found out almost immediately. And I just looked him in the eye and I said, ah, congratulations. I can never play your game. Yeah, no, Ricky's, he's, he's uh, designed Koo and he's working on um, these, intera- you know, actually, I had a lot to talk to him about. He's working on interactive games uh, involving multiple players and a video screen that Which he's trying to put together. Very you know. much what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, uh, what he's doing is simpler, but it may be like more commercial, more accessible than the kind of, you know, big production foreign policy crisis stuff that I'm doing. Well, yours is yours is much more site specific and his is is trying to be more uh, everybody can can put their thing into that. I know that that you're also trying to do that. No, yeah, they're they're definitely uh, different. But he did it. He was doing an interesting racehorse game where people were combining his teams in order to. You know, you bet your money. You're pumping up horses. You're training riders or something like. There was it was interesting. It was an interesting game he was working on, which is really. It, he did well, not apologize at all for you being unable to play his game. If I remember. No, correctly. no, yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> no. He said, "Why can't you play the game?" I said, "Because everyone kills me first, and then they play the rest of the game." And he said, "Yeah, that'll happen." Well, yeah, like, I think what you're really talking about though is like you were able to come right in and uh, jump right into one of the things that's happening all the time at these, one of the main reasons you attend conferences like this is just the networking. Yeah. You know, meet, meet a lot of people and it doesn't mean like you're going to get a job, but you're expanding the community. Yeah. I think it's kind of what we're doing with the podcast here, but like I met, you know, two dozen people who exchange information with them where I, and everybody's so different. They are, they are radically different people, but they all share a passion. Like they, like, it was so easy to have a conversation with every single one of these people because they all share a passion. They're eager to talk about the thing that they're developing. They're eager to hear your observations about gaming in general and what you like and why you like it. They're happy to opine and 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 have a little a little back and forth. They can get theoretical. I, I had wonderful, wonderful conversations w- with them. I really enjoyed my my short short stint, and you must have just been uh, had a really great time. Yeah, no, I'm. I I will be back, and I I I'm definitely singing the praises of Tabletop Network. People should uh, check it out. You can just go to Google Tabletop Network right now, and you'll you'll see the kind of thing it was. And this is, you know, Tim Fowers and Jeff Beck. I think are the main organizers yeah. behind there. So they did, and they did a great job. Who we got to go out to dinner with, and and hang out, and spend some time with, and just fantastic, fantastic people. Could not be more welcoming to new designers. Uh, really loved it. Uh, we also brought our microphone with us, and we recorded uh, a few interviews with some designers, uh, two of which we're going to share with you. Uh, the first one we're going to share, I think we'll just get into it right now. Uh, we got, we cornered Alan Moon. <laughs> we cornered the uh, the creator of Ticket to Ride, basically an industry into uh, unto himself. He is also the the founding partner, the the man who created. The Gathering of Friends. You may hear us talk about that on the podcast in the interview. The Gathering of Friends is this mythical uh, conclave of Alan Moon and his, you know, three hundred closest friends <laughs> right. that descend upon Niagara Falls or Buffalo, or of, of which we are not. Of of which we were not. <laughs> we will see. Maybe we are now. Uh, it, it is. It is something that everybody tries. Everybody who's been in the hobby long enough tries to find a way to score or an invite to, and it's a place where designers bring their prototypes and 
basically set up all kinds of new games that are just about ready to come out and they put it before people that have been gaming for a very long time and know exactly what they're doing you know hardcore gamers that are way into it that are able to give really good dedicated feedback for those last moments before the game gets published yeah, it's kind of an invite only tabletop network before there was tabletop network but precisely right yeah. Well, without further ado, here is the interview with Alan Moon. All right, this is Game Brain Podcast, and we are here with Alan Moon, the designer of Ticket to Ride. And you start with Ticket to Ride. Start with Diamant. You start with Union Pacific. You start with the airlines. I mean, this this San Marco. This guy has designed so many things, but he also designed one of the monsters of the industry. He designed Ticket to Ride and every game that came out from that. What did, what did Tom leave out there? <laughs> um, quite a few, but it's uh, <laughs> um, probably he left out my favorites. You know, Which so. one? My, my favorite game, actually, I, I don't know. It changes a little bit sometimes, but I really loved uh, the first card game I ever did, which was called um, Verhat Mer, um, which is, it was later published by Rio Grande as what, what's, Where's Bob's Hat? Um, <laughs> where's so, Bob's where's Hat? Bob's I want to play Where's Where's Bob's Hat. All right. Game. It's just it's sort of like it has because it's my first game. It sure. sort of has the sentimental value. But, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, you've been to Union Pacific though. That's, oh yes. Uh, you know, that's still a real favorite of mine. So. Oh, it's a fantastic. Yeah. Game. What was the order? I don't I don't know. So like, what was the order? Where does like Union Pacific fit in compared to Ticket to Ride? Um, one of your early designs. Yeah, right? Airlines was the original version, and then Union Pacific, and then. Um, um, Airlines Europe was uh, that's the sequence of those, and then it's going to be a new one soon. So yeah. So I think you you mentioned um, I'm remembering your your talk from Tabletop Network, and you were talking about uh, how your life's very good now, <laughs> and it changed dramatically. I'm assuming that's with Ticket to Ride, or um, yeah, I mean for sure. Like I, I always tell everybody when I won the award for uh, Elfenland in 1998. That got me back to zero. I was heavily in debt and just my life was a mess. Um, so that kind of got me back to zero, got me to a position where I could work on lots of other games. I was w mostly working as a waiter. And, uh, and so in two 2004, I was, I was out being an independent game designer, you know, not really working as a waiter, but I was at the point where I would have had to get a job again if uh, Tickets Ride hadn't won the award. So that really started, yeah, my, the second part of my life where things are, you know, just financially secure and, yeah, it's just been different. So, so w was that your plan? Like your your work, <laughs> you're working and you're doing board games. Was like board games, like that's my my ticket to ride out of my life right now or what were you what was the plan there or just like advice to uh, people that want to design board games yeah I mean I wouldn't say it was the plan I mean I certainly wanted to be a game designer but the problem is if you have to have another job um, you're out there working and, and you know when I was a waiter I'd sometimes work 8, 10, 12 hours a day and you come home you don't really feel like designing games at that point and, and so that's sad you know so you're, you're trying to work towards that so I quit you know being a waiter for a while to try and go full time as a game designer but it's hard. I mean, Rob Davio, you know, gave a talk at TTN about like if you make five or ten thousand dollars from a game, you've got to do you know 
10 to 12 games a year just to make a medium kind of living. And, you know, that's tough. It's, that's, now, there are more ways to make money today than there were 20 or 30 years ago because of the Internet. I mean, so people like Freedom and Freezer, you know, he's got his own company. He makes a good living. You know, it's not, it's, it's not, he's not a millionaire, but he's making a good living. So it's, it's a tough balance. If you're going to work and design games both, it's very tough. So I think you have to take that leap of faith and go and try and design games, but you need some success in the first couple of years or you're going to be in trouble. So you're, you're saying it was hard, it's hard to work while you're, yeah, you're, hard. you're working, you're working and you're trying to put board games together, but you did it though, yeah. didn't you? Like you yeah. found the time. Yeah, I mean, I was sort of, I mean, the progression was that I started a company called White Wind that was an absolute disaster. It was a total failure until about seven years later when Amigo bought um, the rights to Elfin Roads and made it, and I made it into Elfinland. Um, you know, that was the start of good things. But that my plan with White Wind had been to publish limited editions and then sell them on to bigger companies. That didn't happen at all until seven years later. Um, when I had already closed down the company a few years before. Um, so that was that was the original plan. And then the plan after that was, you know, like I said, I got back to zero and then I went back to work. I worked at uh, Ravensburger and FX Schmidt, um, which was interesting because I got to see the other side of the table. I was the director of licensing and product development. So I was dealing with lots of designers and that was really interesting. I'm glad I did that. And uh, I probably would have stayed. I, I loved working at Ravensburger. I wanted to really go to Ravensburger, Germany and work, but I wasn't allowed to do that. So um, so I just left again and took another leap of faith and said, okay, I'll try it again for a couple of years. And so I was right at that point where I would have to go back and get a job when uh, Tickets Ride won. So, yeah. Okay, great. See, there was a whole, and it seems to me like the, whatever the, the path is that made that worked like that path's already gone or like it's it's changing every year and I, you were mentioning um yeah. different designers now that are kind of forming new paths and it's yeah. kind of like you have to yeah. you can't just be reliant upon publishers to oh. kind of i mean i think what's unsaid about you know a game a month is that nobody can do that yeah. it's nope. not it's not possible you got to have the hit or you got to be working for yourself in some yeah. way and even that might be yeah, might be tough. changing yeah. No, it's, it's tough. And plus, you know, there were 1,200 new games at Essen. How are you possibly going to make yours stand out? You know, how, how are the publishers going to make a game stand out anymore? It's just crazy. I just, I don't understand. As a gamer, I don't even know where to start to look at, mm. you know, possible games I might like. And what's happened really this year, I think, for the first time, is there's no buzz on anything from Essen. 1,200 new games, and there's no buzz. So I think what's going to happen is in two weeks, they're all going to be gone, and everybody's going to be looking forward to the Nuremberg games. And I think that's amazing. It's like, so the cult of the new is kind of like taken over completely in some ways, except for a few games that are able to, you know, stand outside that. But so I mean, am I understanding you right? You're like, there's so many games so that nothing in particular you feel like is, is standing not, out I, I really, right now. Nobody's like, usually in a year there's one or two games that people are talking about. I'm not seeing that this year. When we were at Essen two years ago, I think it was a similar thing. In 2017, there wasn't any particular one standout that really, really captured the imagination. Despite the number of games, yeah. Do you think that, um, to some degree, Kickstarter is to blame? I mean, Kickstarter has changed the, yeah, the equation. Uh, yeah. And yeah, I wouldn't say it's a blame. You know, I mean, I, 
I, I'm not sure Kickstarter is a bad thing. It's just that, you know, everybody feels like they can do it. And so it just makes the path so easy. And I'm impressed all the time about how good the productions are. I don't know about the games because I don't get to play most of them, but the productions are great usually. So, I mean, they're obviously getting help because, like, if you're a regular person, you don't know how to produce a game like that. So obviously they're going to somebody who's helping them with that. And, and they're great. They look great. You walk around Gen Con, it's amazing. I, I walked around Gen Con, it's like, oh my God, look at all these games. They're great. And, you know, but, but I don't know what they're like to play. And that's the problem is. Well, your games were always very well produced. I mean, uh, Union Pacific was a, a beautiful game. It had a gorgeous board to it. Ticket to Ride, the, the original Ticket to Ride with the, you know, the, the, the train pieces, yeah. the gorgeous art on the cards. Yeah. It was a. It was you always seem. Your games seem to always have a real attention to detail in a way that Kickstarter has only kind of caught everybody else up to that. Before yeah. that, you know, you would look at when I look at my favorite Martin Wallace games, they could not be more stripped down, more yeah. basic, more you know things thrown in a shoebox. Yeah, I bet. But I think now, yeah, it's true. But I, I just look around. I think there's a lot of artists, you know, game designers have a lot in common with artists, the whole starving artist syndrome. And so that kind of, you know, I always tell people, you don't want to be a starving artist. You want to be a successful game designer, you know, like it's, it's fun to say, oh, you know, I'm just trying to make great games. You know, that's not, that's not fun. That's not fun. It, it might be fun for a few years, but after a while, it's a lot more fun to have money. So, <laughs> <laughs> Alan, we, uh, we have a lot of people on our, uh, th that listen to us that are looking for what are that what is that hidden game people don't talk about but is really really great yeah. games other than games that you design yeah i never what would you what would you what would you say can you can you name anything that that you wish peop, more people knew about yeah i mean i mean the things i've enjoyed over the last few years i just i just loved pandemic legacy it was just and i played with three lawyers so you know <laughs> and they were why just, why did you do that because well, one of them's my wife and the other two are guys good friends and all they did was try and cheat you know, it's like the three of them. I'm the only one trying to hold us to the rules. They go, well, we could just go back and do that over. I go, no, no, that was like three turns ago. You know, we can't do that. You know? Especially so, but, in a cooperative game, right? It was just, it was just amazingly fun. And, and we've been playing Machikura Legacy, which is a, a much simpler game. And so it's, um, but it's, it's still really fun. It's a nice social experience. Um, so I really enjoy that type of game a lot. Um, you know, a lot of games I, I play once and then I don't play again, and not because they're bad games, but you feel like, you know, I just don't have the time to do that. And I'd rather play what are really, for me, my favorite games that are mostly pretty older games. So what, what would be some of your favorite um, games that you want to play over yeah, I mean, and over again? The game I, I was on my all-time favorite was Descent Journeys into the Dark, the mm -hmm. first edition. And so, of course, nobody's making scenarios for it anymore. So you can't, we're going to wait a couple of years and then go back and play it again. But <laughs> And that game sort of, you know, it, it did everything for me that I would never think I would like. We, we talked, you know, argued about the rules all the time. There was just, it was long, it was just complicated. But I loved that game. I just, when it was really good, it was, it was an amazing experience and, and I miss it and you know the, the Descent 2 is not the same they've simplified it mm -hmm. taken out a thing, the things that really make the first game great one of them is the stamina points where you can just use you know, the fatigue points where mm -hmm. you can just use and that, that was a big part of what made the game great so yeah but it seems like there's, there's obviously a movement to kind of simplify and streamline yeah. a lot of older Which games usually I'm in favor of yeah right. sure but yeah but that one I miss that game I, I played hundreds of hours of that game and it was awesome Awesome. So it seemed like one of the things you talked about at, at Tabletop Network was branding yeah. and <laughs> ad advice to people about, about, about branding. So yeah. 
you are your brand, right? That isn't that that's your message. Yeah. Well, I was trying to say that I don't think game companies do a good job of branding, and so I was trying to tell game designers that they have to make themselves the brand, and it's hard because game companies don't want to put game designers very prominently on the box. Still, or, right? It's still, kind of a bizarre yeah. thing, right? Yeah. I talked about you know when I worked at Parker Brothers that. I got interested in like, why don't you put the game designers' names on the box? And they gave me all sorts of crazy reasons. And then one day a vice president said, we've never done it. And I thought like, that's the dumbest reason of all. You know, and so, and I think other game companies have sort of continued that tradition by not like featuring the game, the game designer's name. And then, you know, I gave the comparison of books. Like if you go to a bookstore, it's all about John, pa James Patterson or John Sanford or whoever, Oops, yeah. you know, you don't know who the publisher is. Nobody cares who the publisher is. And so game designers, I feel should have that. The game companies are missing the boat by like America's all about celebrity and personality. Mm -hmm. And that's what they should try to feature. And so, you know, it's a slow build. You can't start from like immediately expect somebody's name to mean something, but you have to give it a chance. And and the other part of that is if you put the game designer on the box in a big way, it doesn't hurt the sales. Nobody's going to say, oh, I'm not buying that game because he's on. But it might help down the road. And so, But they just don't understand that. They, they really don't. It seems like the, one of my takeaways from Tabletop Network is you look at kind of a generation of younger designers now, and they've taken the kind of like branding idea really to heart. And mm -hmm. part of that is embracing social media. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it was, you know, specifically, I can think like the kind of best example right now is, is Cole Worley. Yeah. You know, like Root is a brand. Yeah. That world, but you also have him doing on BGG, mm -hmm. doing his designer diaries yeah, all the sure. time. And that, it, I think any any young designer, I think you express some frustration with social media. But like, if you're a young oh, no, designer, no, no, not really. I mean, it's just that I, you know, I'm an old guy, so I don't I don't use it that much. But yeah, no, it's great. I absolutely applaud them for doing that. I think they should do as much of that as they can. Yeah, it's like it's up to the designer. Not yeah. do not expect the publisher no, no. to take care of you, even no. in like terms of the box or no. even the marketing your own game. You have to do that yourself. You have to be promoting yourself and getting yourself out on Absolutely. social media. Absolutely, yeah, and it's it's great. You have a huge opportunities with Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, it's it's huge. I'm I'm not on Facebook because it, I just can't imagine like how many people I'd have to be friends with, and you know, it's just <laughs> like it's too much. It's too much stress, you know. So, but I might go. I might actually do Twitter or Instagram at some point because my wife's really enjoying it too so I don't know <laughs> uh, last question I think um, you are you we saw you talking to Jennifer Schlickburn who's a good good friend of ours uh, we've been playing games with her for a long time and I guess we should announce it here she's about to become the newest member of our uh, of our game brain team she's gonna nice. be uh, one of our one of our podcasters uh, She's been coming to Gathering of Friends, which yeah. is your event, is that correct? Yeah, she, she came for a long time, and she hasn't been in the last few years. But yeah, she came for a long time. and She has tortured us for years <laughs> about the Gathering of Friends events. How do we get invited to your <laughs> gathering? Of That's the question you friends. get. You get all the time. <laughs> right? Yeah, I'm actually surprised. I usually don't get asked about that too much, but I, I've only been here for a few hours, and I've actually been <laughs> okay, asked so quite a few times. One, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, this, you're not. You're like number six. Oh gosh, today, I so, so it's a, usually I'm a little more low key than I'm sort of being this year. So I don't gotcha. know. It's probably not a smart decision. Well, so. okay. So for people that are listening, tell us what gathering of friends is. The gathering of friends started out as a, just a weekend together with about 23 friends. 31 years ago and today it's grown into about 450 people um, for 10 days 
and it's almost all industry people, um, designers or companies. It's really become the best place to show prototypes. So you get to come, the, the company reps don't have any other agenda, so they can sit with you and play the whole game, go out to eat with you. So it's a great opportunity for designers. And the, and the publishers like it too. A lot of big games have been discovered there, including Dominion and uh, really Matt Leacock, um, you know, play-tested uh, Pandemic there, and lots of you know, big games, Tom Lehman, any number of his games. So it's, it's a really cool place. Now, now, despite what that I just said, that was never my intent or, or plan or anything. It just sort of happened. And I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, more designers and more King Company reps started coming and that brought more. And it, yeah, it was just, like I said, no intent at all. It's, and so now the gathering has become more of a responsibility to me than-, than Oh, I hope know, it's still fun for you. It, it's fun in a different way. I mean, I love the social stuff and, but yeah, it's it's different. I don't get to play a lot of games. I'm, I'm busy, you know, negotiating with the hotel and taking care <laughs> of all the hidden problems and stuff. So, yeah, but but it's it's a fun thing. My wife wants me to go to year fifty, so we'll see. Oh, good. That's a good a good goal. Well, Alan, we want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us, and we want to thank you especially for many, many, many years of great games. Thanks thank you, a lot, sir. Guys. All right, thank you. Right. And we're back. Let's uh, let's get right into the meat of it. Let's get to BGGCon. We we talked about what happened on Monday and Tuesday. Starting on Wednesday, we played games and oh boy, did we play games. The rest of this uh, podcast is basically going to be us giving our impressions of the games we played. And spoiler alert, we're going to do a full review of one of the games, of the game that we played the most at the con. That game was Crystal Palace. Hold on to your horses. We got a review for you. The very first game we sat down and played was Cooper Island. Cooper Island. Let me give you some stats on Cooper Island. Uh, Cooper Island, 2019. Virtually every game we talk about is going to be 2019. Uh, Andreas Ode Odenthal was the designer, and the artist is Javier Gonzalez Cava. Uh, it plays two to four players in about 60 to 120 minutes. I think 120 minutes is a fairly decent uh, call. And its weight currently is 4.13. So it's on the heavier side, uh, which I think fits with, with our impression of it. Trey, what would you say about, what would you have to say about Cooper Island? I think I'm eager to play it again. Mm-hmm. We, didn't, we did not get a full playthrough of it. Um, it seemed to have a lot of interesting things. It was definitely a multiplayer solitaire. Yes, game. it is a it is a game in which uh, there is a central island, and around that island there are peninsulas, one per player, and you are developing your peninsula. While at the same time you have two ships that can move their way in opposite directions, one clockwise, one counterclockwise, down your peninsula and onto and visit the other peninsulas, and by doing so gain some of the benefits that the other players have had. That seems to be where the the non-multiplayer co-op, that seems to be the only main interaction that there is with another player, which sounds like... There's a little bit of interaction because it is kind of worker placement. Yes. In that you, there's action spaces, but not, you never get completely locked out, right? You just pay like a, uh, one money Correct. in order to go to a space that someone has already 
taken. Sure. Which is less punitive, but money is quite tight in this game. So money is very, very, very tight. So so that that payment can sometimes be the difference between you being able to take that space and you not being able to take that yeah, space. Tom, we didn't have like a specific list of games that we wanted, or at least I didn't, but uh, of games that we wanted to play at BGG Con. But I think we, at least in our heads, we did. Yeah. And, I and think Cooper Island was, was one of them. Way up there. Way up there. It was, you know, it, it was a game that was, you know, we, we announced it before Essen. We talked about how it looks very, very interesting. Uh, Ode Odenthal is a good designer. We, we like his, his games. We think he's a, a pretty darn good at, uh, at game design. So we were eager to, we were eager to play it. Uh, there's no, it's no shock that it was the first game that we, that we got out because, uh, Matt's copy has not arrived yet. I did not order it. I didn't, I didn't pre-order it. I just wasn't quite sure I wanted to yet. Yeah, it had good buzz, and it also it has it probably has like the right amount of of weight for like so that it seemed like it would be a good fit for our group, and it may still be. I'm eager to to circle back around on and 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 give it a, another shot. It, I'm not sure it's going to be exactly my thing, but there it might be really perfect for some kind of players right this i'm becoming more like more games i played at this convention i became even more aware of how like the things i like in a game may not be the same things that the market is responding to or even like the quote-unquote heavier gamers that i associate with seem to like so agreed listen we talked a lot about multiplayer solitaire last week i do think that that is one of the things that turns me off to a game to some degree that said it's not a deal breaker it doesn't tell me that i'm not going to play this game because it is mostly multiplayer solitaire it just has to be an exceptional game besides that point for me to be interested in i will say from one from one short play of cooper island it it may be one of those games that has enough going on there's some there there definitely there is definitely some there there the most interesting thing about it is the three-dimensionality of it when you're putting down tiles you're not simply putting down tiles a when you put Mm -hmm. a tile down you are creating two different land spaces, each of which generates one item. Yeah, you're doing tile stacking. Tile stacking Correct. is a big aspect of this game, which is interesting. You need to clear those items to be able to put a second layer on top of it. And when you do, that area now generates two of that particular resource. It is, I would say this, it is one of those things that, it's a game that has an engine that can easily be jammed up. And jammed up in multiple ways. It can be jammed up in terms of I have items that are on my map that I need to have off my map so my map can grow. It also has a jam up in which in order to take the items off of the map, I have to put them in my storage and my storage is very very limited. limited, Very limited, yeah. Yeah. So... I would say that our first play, it there was some frustration with that, mm-hmm. but maybe the good kind of frustration. Maybe that's the kind of frustration that can that can bear fruit when you start to get your 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 arms around how to play the game. That may be a really satisfying puzzle to solve. Yeah, this, the the multi, the solitaire aspects of it might just still be really good. Right. Yeah. yeah. It certainly seemed, but deep certainly to was, and it was hard. Yes, I was one of the people that got like the sand of the gears. I there was plenty of sand in my gears because of the way that resources work in that game and your very limited inventory supply. Where like I felt like I couldn't do anything, and it was certainly the result of poor play. Right, but you know that's okay, right? I started off having no problems with that, but 
by the time the mid game started to emerge, I realized, oh, I figured out how to keep things flowing, mm-hmm. but I've made horrible mistakes in terms of what I've done and where I've placed things, and and I have a very inefficient peninsula, <laughs> right? Which is interesting. It, it's a, it's a very interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm eager to return to it, and I think uh, yeah, my my kind of like core instinct as a gamer is to engine build and accumulate resources, and this has some uh, mechanisms that will completely punish that. Like you, it's not just efficiency doesn't necessarily mean stockpiling resources. In this case, it means what you take in has to go right back out or else your your entire engine can clog. So anyway, a good game. We'll, we're eager to return to it. Totally. Our second game was Crystal Palace. We're not going to say a word about Crystal Palace because we're going to give you the full on review later. Suffice it to say, there's a reason we're giving you the review. We played this game and we were like, oh, I can't wait to talk about this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the third thing, we came back after dinner with Tim Fowers and Tim Fowers uh, gave us Sabotage to play. That's his new game. Trey, well, He didn't give us Sabotage. I wish he had given us he'd Sabotage. Gi- he'd given us Sabotage. He has. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's it's coming in. It's being shipped. Uh, we played Sabotage. We played Sabotage. Sabotage, I would say the closest analogy to it is it is, um, what was the game? Uh, Captain Sonar mm-hmm. meets Burgle Brothers. Right. Really. Makes sense. In, in a lot of ways. You are, it is two versus two, or it's best two versus two. I guess you could play it one versus one. Two players are the spies, and they are infiltrating the evil mastermind's lair and headquarters, and they're trying to disarm the global destruction devices, of which there are two on the map. On both maps, you can see where the global destruction devices are, and Mm -hmm. you can see where the power generation device is as well. The other team are the two supervillains. The supervillains, their job is to murder the, find and murder the spies. <laughs> Prevent them from doing their spy things. Correct. And the, and the spies' job is to basically uh, disarm the weapons, right? Disarm, mm-hmm. disarm the weapons. If, uh, so, yes, it's kind of like a running multiplayer battleship game. Yes. With, with progressing powers. You play a character that has a unique... Each person plays a unique character yes. that has kind of a, you're unlocking a tech tree of ex, of expanding powers uh, that you, like, as the game continues, you are able to engage in more complex gameplay. Yes, you start off with basically two to three abilities that your character can engage, two or three things that you can do, but you also have a list of six things or four <laughs> or six things at the top of your uh, at the top of your player board and when you have accumulated enough little cubes from through the gameplay through doing certain things you can unlock one two or eventually even three of these much more high caliber powers for instance the bad guys we have the ability to stun you we have stun guns which shouldn't really be called stun guns because they kill you Uh, but I have to guess exactly the square that you are in. I have to be right next to that square and hit you. Later on, I one of my char- one of the characters, because there are multiple characters that have multiple special abilities. One of the characters can bring out a flamethrower or an orbital laser, and in which case they can hit you from virtually anywhere. And the flamethrower hits multiple spaces, just as the 
basest of examples of the different things you can do. The spies have a lot of tech that will allow them to do scans and figure out where the where the bad guys are and what's going on on the bad guys side of the of the map without giving away their position because most of the time the spies are going to have to move and scan and whenever they move and scan they're essentially giving away crucial information that gives the bad guys a pretty decent idea of where they might be very much so i I often did not want to actually be doing my scanning because i felt like i was giving my position away but i think this is a game also that would uh despite it being kind of on the light to medium side in terms of heaviness I think it will reward multiple plays because um, I think I, if I understood it better, I would have been able to be a much better spy. And so I'm looking forward to getting better at the game, which I think is a very good sign yes. for the design. Yes. Um, friend of the podcast, Mark Now. Strange enough, you hear Mark Now's voice almost every podcast. Game night. No, it's, that's not the wrong one. No, sorry. Which one is it? It's, uh, it's this one. Good evening, Mr. Mr. Now from South American. All the tips and clippers and see. Let's go to press play. We knew that he recorded game right. news. We had no idea that the singing at the it's end actually him. Yeah. is him. All of those voices are him. Mark, you, you you blew us away. That's kind of amazing that you were able to do that. It's it's, it's really neat. Mark uh, designs LARPs with Trey and I for Gen Con. We've been friends for years and years and years back when he was living in LA. He now lives in Austin. It came out for for Wednesday through Sunday. We played a lot of games with him. Mark and I were the supervillains. Trey and a red shirt that we recruited <laughs> were the spies. Right. And the spies went down hard. And uh, we lost. And I certainly, I used a number of clones. Let's just say that I, I used a number of clones in we my said game. It. We said at the beginning of the game, we, we LARPed. We LARPed it. And the, the villain said, we are only going to kill Trey three times. We are going to kill other guy two times. And that's exactly what happened. Which was their victory condition. So It was. No, I'm eager to play this. Again. We'll probably do a full review. Oh, I think at, we, at some we point. absolutely will. It, the, the, the long and short of it is, it is a very fun game. It is very fun. Yeah. And unlike Captain Sonar, which, Trey, you won't play, it doesn't... It's a, ha- it's a good game. It's just not a good fit for me. I totally agree. It is, but it doesn't have the real time element. Mm-hmm. It has more strategy. Consi- I think mm-hmm. considerably more strategy than uh, than Captain Sonar has. Yeah, and it's very social. Yes, but which is to say it's more of a gamer's game. I think Captain Sonar is more of a party game hmm. in, in a lot of ways or, or you know, a, a light social game. Even though Sabotage is probably lighter. Is it though? I mean, it's not really because you have to. You, you, you're making many more choices in a round. Okay, right. You're making more decisions. It's Captain Sonar it, because it's a, a real time game, and there's that constant time pressure. Essentially, if I'm the engineer, all I'm trying to do is clear off these systems so these systems work. If I'm the sonar guy, right. all I'm trying to do is hear what the other guy's saying. Right. Right. Whereas in this game, every player is making very hard decisions all the time. Yeah. And and your the- your success is going to be based upon how well you coordinate with your with your partner. Correct. And you and Mark coordinated very well. We are we are wonderful team evil. Yeah, and I may not have been the best partner in Look, that game. I think don't beat yourself up. Mark and I were. <laughs> That's your job. <laughs> Mark, Mark and I were just absolutely fantastic. We were. Good. It, was a lo- it was a lot of fun. Now is when we kill these spies. Kill these spies. 
It, so put this, yeah, I mean, put this on your list. Uh, we're going to do a full review uh, in the upcoming weeks, but you know, put this on uh, the, your list of games to look look at. See if this is the kind of thing that appeals to you. Uh, no pun included. Did a recent review of it, in which was a rave. Yes, review. they loved so it. So if you want to find out more about sabotage, go YouTube. No pun included. Review of that. And speaking of Tim Fowers, we actually got to sit down with him and do a little interview. This will be the uh, the, the second interview uh, of two that we give you for this podcast. We might even have some other interviews that we can give you in the future. But for today, sit back and listen to our short interview with Tim Fowers. We are here with game designer Tim Fowers. We just finished playing his brand new game, Sabotage. We've had an absolutely great time playing it, and uh, we just want to do a, a little interview with Tim. We actually had dinner with him last night and just had a great time talking about all kinds of things game-related. Tim, how are you? Hey, doing good. Good. So what, 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 um, your newest game is uh, Sabotage, but we know you from, we've talked many times on the pod about Burgle Brothers. We've talked about Paperback. Uh, we've talked about uh, Fugitive. Uh, and now boarding actually is one game we do we have not played of yours and has gotten rave reviews. Yeah, uh, I've been I mostly just saw direct. I've been at it for uh, I've been full time since 2015, and um, no, I'm just you know doing my thing and and uh, glad that people like it. So you've got you've got a Kickstarter coming up soon too, right? Uh, I just no not Kickstarter. I'm sorry. Just tell, tell us what the deal is with Burgle Brothers. So, too. so yeah, so Burgle um, a, la, a couple like uh, two months ago. I had a Kickstarter for Burgle Bros. Two, uh, the Casino Capers, set in set in Vegas. Yeah. And it's a it's a remix of the original mechanics. Um, it's weird to make a sequel of a board game. Like there aren't a lot of twos out there, <laughs> so we had to kind of decide what that meant. But with kind of being a Ocean's Eleven thing, we wanted sure. to make a, a sequel. So we felt like we had enough new things to say with it that we did a sequel. So. Well, a lot of your games are very cinematic. Uh, Burgle Brothers certainly is tremendously cinematic. Sabotage is very cinematic. And for those games, I think doing a sequel is a lot easier to do. I mean, I, I would say that uh, Pandemic Legacy had a season two because it felt very much yes. like that kind of experience. Yeah, and, yeah. and your games are, are, are even yeah. though very different, they're similar. Yeah, they're doing television, I'm doing movies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, um... Yeah, I mean, we also, uh, after, after Burgle Bros uh, hit such a vein, we really started to look at movies for inspiration of like, okay, this is a, a scaffolding of like an emotional framework. People understand the arc of, uh, of a, a movie, what emotions it's going to produce. We have tropes to lean on. Um, and, and so with, with Fugitive, um, now boarding is, I guess, catch me if you can. It's not necessarily cinematic but then then with back with uh with, with uh sabotage it was very much you know bondian but also like even just the 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 vibe in, in incredibles sneaking into the base and and in the in the 50s retro um yeah the artwork definitely suggests uh, incredibles i was looking at it and i was like this is perfect this is absolutely perfect for that Vol kind of uh, volcano tone. base yeah yeah <laughs> so. so um trey do you want to talk about table uh, tabletop network yeah, uh, so, yeah, Tim, you founded Tabletop Network. Why don't you explain to folks at home what, it, what it's all about? Uh, we, we just felt there needed to be a kind of a seminar-style conference for board game designers where you could actually listen. Um, board game designers love to get together, but they just play test, play test, play test. Right. So we were looking at other industries, like especially video game industry, things like GDC, Game Developers Conference, and like, okay, there's something missing here. 
and just professional development. And it turns out that there's like a, a, a big void for camaraderie. Like yeah. we, once we opened the doors and started doing, you know, the talks are all useful, but just the camaraderie between designers um, and, and kind of establishing a, a positive kind of mentorship um, vibe, it was great. And so it's a two day conference of talks and workshops and some hands on stuff. And, uh, and we just finished it. We're a little exhausted, but <laughs> I mean, it was good. And we had incredible people there, just incredible talks. Incredible yeah, I, I mean, a ton of top designers giving like TED Talk style presentations over, you know, uh, all kinds of different topics. And then uh, like one of the highlights at the end was the, uh, the Shark Tank, yeah. where uh, designers get to, to pitch their games. Um, and uh, this year... To people like Martin Wallace, Martin Wallace. just <laughs> staring at them like, what are you doing? Well, it, it would be better if he were just staring. <laughs> but no, Martin Wallace had just, a lot to say. Oh my gosh. Steve Bonacore, Martin Wallace, uh, we had, and then a representative from White, uh, White Wizard and uh, Ravensburger. And uh, some were being Paula, some were being Simon Cowell. Like they were... <laughs> Uh, I mean, but the format is just, it's, it's an elevator pitch. It's three minutes and, and you're asking for just honesty and it, and it's, it's touching and terrifying and it's just a whole range of emotions. And, and it's, even though it, it can be painful, it's clearly very helpful to people as far as both understanding what publishers want, but also just like how you have to be able to communicate about your game and 30, in 30 seconds. Plus it was also, uh, half the time it was simply a, uh, anyone would reject your game at this point because these things are not yeah. there. Whether it's like way too many components, you know, the theme doesn't match the mechanics. Yeah, blind spots. Like, like here are your blind spots. And, and I mean, it's not always in a nice way. But like, <laughs> it was not always in a nice way, yes. But I mean, but also like everyone wants to sign up and make a Kickstarter. And it's like, you know, everyone's a, you know, everyone can do it. But this really brings home what, what it takes, not just with preparation, but also just like presence and pitching and, and all these like social skills, like, you know, that you think you, you might not think you need. So. Well, it's so hard because as you said, game designers are very lonely people. They don't have a lot of, you know, there's not a huge support network and especially not a network of people that have produced games. I, I'm not a lonely person. Gamers, I'm not a lonely person. You're every not a lonely game, person. Every game designer I know is just a sad, just lonely, <laughs> Tim, does this describe? Oh, this well, does not yeah. describe you either. Well, I don't think. Uh, they scare away all their friends because they play tested them to death. Maybe, but you've you've built a, a a little bit of a community. Like you've started a business now. Yeah, I have. I have a studio. I think is the yeah. best way to say it. I have a couple of guys that e each actually have their own brands, and we just kind of like help each other in like kind of feedback. Um, but I don't really have employees per se. Right. Okay. Yeah. For everybody uh, on the podcast, we've talked many times about the Italian Collective and how they come in and out of each other's games and help each other. Tim is doing that in Utah right now, and it's it's pretty exciting. No, I'm, I'm jealous. You've you've built a community. I imagine it's very helpful for always getting feedback. You show up for work. Yeah. <laughs> You're not just you know in your PJs or whatever. You you go to work. Uh, you got to pay the rent. You, you're getting feedback. You're also, um, I, I look to you as somebody who's like doing things differently. Like maybe the model of, hey, I'm going to make a game. I'm going to pitch it to publishers. They're going to, they're going to, you know, sign it, and then I'm going to make, you know, yeah. four cents on the dollar. 
on the thing. You're not doing it that way. Well, yeah. So it's a lot of direct sales, but it's also, I'm also avoiding distribution and it gets a little bit into the weeds of like how these models work, but basically I'm kind of bucking the whole normal way of selling. And I'm just like, I'm going to sell direct to people. I mean, I, I am in some stores, so it's not like I'm yeah. not in stores, but if people know how stores get games, it's usually through distribution and distribution lead to online retailers like Miniature Market and Cool Stuff Inc. and whatnot. But those guys doing heavy discounting undercuts the whole process. So now everyone's like, oh, I should always get you know, 40% off on my games. And, and that um, you know, really um, undermines the ability to live off this stuff. And so I've just been slow grow, direct sales, and by, by doing that, it's like, I don't sell very many but it's, it's actually, I think, a more sustainable as, I mean, I don't have a company, a big company to run, so I'm keeping my overhead low, but it's actually very sustainable in the long run, so I'm able to, to be full-time. Well, the other thing is, is you have created a brand. Your games are not just, you're not just a self-published uh, designer. You have a brand. Your games look and feel a certain way. Sure, paperback is a little bit different than now boarding. Now boarding is a little bit different sure. than, than sabotage, but they all feel like, you, it feels like when a new Tim Fowers game is coming out, we kind of have an idea of what it is. And I have to tell you, you're one of the few designers I know where you have not put out a bad game yet. There's not a game of yours. No, no. It, maybe it, you it, haven't seen them. It, no, I, no, no, but no, Tim, no, do, do you have any bad to. games, Tim? Please answer the question. Do you have any bad games? Yeah, I need a yes or no. Yes, yes, I have bad games. I, I don't, I, I own Burgle Brothers. I own Fugitive. Um, I, I own Paperback. I, I, I do. I throw a lot away. I mean, because, okay, the, part of that whole distribution model mm. is it's about velocity. Right. And so, most people that, that, even people that are doing kind of the self-publishing thing, once you go into distribution, to maintain the margins that you need, mm. you have to do three or four games a year. Like, wow. completed games in and out, right? So then you need the staff to do that, right? Yep. So, um, so me, it's like, I, I have to do one game a year. So I'll, I'll spend three months on a game, sometimes six months on a game. And it's just like, yes, there's a lot that were just not good enough. And, it's, sure. and, and you have that sunk cost. It's really hard to walk away from. Because you're like, no, 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 I can make it work, I can make it work. And so, yeah, I mean, we've you, got a graveyard. You never played flowchart. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no flowchart, man. That's like, that's like, that's like the, the, the ex-girlfriend that like is crazy, but you just keep, you know, you, you keep going back to her. Like, Sorry, I had to do it. I mean, oh, we, we it's could so talk, bad. We can talk about some screenplays that Trey wrote that, we, that hasn't seen the light of day. And we're like. done here at <laughs> DGGCon. <laughs> Tim uh, Fowers. Tim, Tim last, uh, <laughs> last question. No, 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 uh, we're done here. Sorry. We're, we're always looking for what, what people think are hidden gems. So mm. games that are not yours, that you, that you love, that you really, really like, that maybe aren't the first thing people think of when they think of a, of a great game. Because you're, you're, oh, yeah, you, yeah. you play a lot of games as well. as, uh, as kind of. Not as much as I should. Well, sure. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Um, uh, what's the – there's a new one called Die Crew, the Die Crew from – Yes, from I, yes I, I've been hearing about a, that. Uh, yeah, it came out of Germany. Today, yeah. well, I mean, still haven't played it, but a lot of really good – I've had several people tell me directly about it. Um, uh, like Hidden Gems, um, I mean, going – I mean, I've been getting back into some of the old ones, like Innovation. Like yeah. It didn't get enough credit. Carl Chuddock, fantastic game. Yeah, but, I mean, it kind of has, has kind of faded away, and it's like it's a – it's a really solid game. I mean, 
there are some modern classics that with the velocity of everything, you're like, oh yeah, that was a good game. And, and the cults of the new just push you into the new stuff. And so I think, I think finding a collection of like modern classics that haven't been, because very often you'll have like a dominion and it grows into this whole genre, but then you have these little offshoots, like it, that didn't go anywhere, but they were onto something. Oh, you yeah. know, I think I think having a, some kind of like list or something of like modern classics um, would would be would be interesting. So we may have to put that together. That we we've been uh, um, talking internally about having an episode where we're talking about recommendation Christmas recommendations for every type of gamer oh, yeah. and, and going off that kind of thing. But actually starting to put together a list of instant classics. This month we were doing old school was the theme, so we were talking about a lot of older games and sort of separating which ones have aged very well and which ones haven't. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's, and there's also, it's a moving target. People's sensibilities get heavier. Like, as a, as a, as a community, we get heavier over time. It's just it happened. Um, and, and there's just different things. Like, the funniest one is when you see, like, somebody comes to Tabletop Network or something, or they pop up and they're like, I've been working on this game for 10 years in my basement. And you're just like, sweet summer child. <laughs> I'm so sorry. You missed all the memos about how we've evolved as a community, and uh, and and so you try to educate them. And I, I know your chess game has three players instead of two, right? But we're just we're just, that's just not where we're at right now. That's that's literally someone we know, we know, we know exactly the four the four person. player chess guy. Yeah, we know we know <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, it's not a. Tim, thank you so much. We've had we've had a really really great time at the con. With yeah, you. congratulations yeah. on Sabotage. It's a, it's a it's a great game. Uh, We're going to be reviewing it very very soon. It's fantastic. And so, if people want your game, they should go to your website. Fowers.games. Fowers.games. Yeah. Okay. So that's where you go to get Sabotage. Buy it directly from Tim. Yeah. That's yeah. the way to do yeah. it. Yeah. If you call you'll the customer enjoy. support number, it goes to me. So if you just want to talk, <laughs> if you're going to talk to Tim. Customer support at Fowers. In all seriousness, we don't know. Uh, we don't know of a bad Tim Fowers game. They're they're all really really interesting and really fun. Well, there there is certainly is pressure, so I'll keep throwing game, games away. So. There you go. All right, thanks, thanks so Tim. All right, bye. And we're back on Thursday. Thursday, we began the day by playing Crystal Palace for a second time. Could not wait to get it to the table. And then after that, we played. Expedition to New Dale. Expedition to New Dale is an Alexander Fister joint. Uh, he is the designer. The artist is Clemens Franz. Yes. It is published by Lookout Games. And Love uh, him. Trey, Trey, who is Clemens Franz for those who are uninitiated? He does all of the artwork for my favorite games, especially Uwe Rosenberg. <laughs> Yes, he, he he's the he's the Agricola guy, isn't he? He's the Agricola guy. Yeah, he's the. Uh, he Bora works with other Bora people guy. too, but he, yes, he has a, a, a an art style which may have defined the Euro board game over the last few years. And it is Expedition to New Dale. That is a gorgeous game, no question about it. It is beautiful. It is fun to play. Uh, this is a game that is based on an earlier title of his called Oh My Goods. Oh my goods is this a, is in the Oh my goods universe. Correct. Oh my goods is a medium. Is a, it's a fairly small box, medium weight game from Alexander Fister that didn't really. It, it it wasn't something that was a big seller. It wasn't something that tons of people know about. It's not a a Great Western Trail. It's an, it's not that kind of uh, a game, but. And maybe because the title, Oh My Goods, with the exclamation point at the end of, Oh My Goods, it sounds frivolous. But it's not. It's a good game. 
It's a really solid is it, design. And is that one of those ones that's like being translated from German in a weird way? Or something? Or I think it might be. I think that they might have just come up with it also, that. Like, it's a card game. Like, yes. oh my goodness, it's a card game. So it was designed to be, like, uh, the weight of the game is appropriate to a card game. So it's a Euro in a card game form. Sure. And I think, so, I think it did fine. I mean, I think it's it's done fine, but it's just like a card, it's a card game, so people may not be thinking when I want my, you know, Euro resourcey game, I'm going to get it out of out of a, a card game. But, you know, he's made Great Racing Trail, Mombasa, Isle of Sky, Broom Service, Blackout Hong Kong. I mean, Alexander Fisher is a rock star, and yeah. he is on a roll. Uh, this is not the only game of his that's out this year. He also has Maracaibo out, so he's got a lot of mm-hmm. stuff. And we've already done a little bit of we we played a little Maracaibo, so we've got a first impression of that. We're going to save that for a later review. But Expedition we'll, to we'll New Dale is back the, on that one for it, sure. Yeah. yeah, Expedition to New Dale is the harder to find. I think there was only one or two copies at the entire BGG Con, so we were mm-hmm. very very lucky to play it. It is a good game. It is not. It is a card game, but it does. But it does have a board. You are moving your uh, uh, pieces around the board to different cities and towns. Um, you're you have a victory condition that is asking you to get to these particular cities uh, to score a, a lot of points. You start with one card in front of you, and that card is a coal mine. And each round, that coal mine is going to generate a certain amount of coal. You can then get later cards, and when you get these cards, these cards are going to generate other resources, or they're going to take that coal and turn that coal into something else. They're going to be able to use that. And basically, the idea is coal is worth one point each. Um, what, what, would you, what would you say? Let, let's pick another resource. Um I mean, there's a whole tech tree of the resources, right? Yes. So, you're like, you may start with coal, but then you're collecting grain, and you can make bread with that. I mean, it's some stuff that's pretty familiar to like certain Euro precisely right tropes. Um, and some of those are worth two, and then there's there were three. I had an abattoir that could that that could turn cows and, and turn them into four uh, four points right. each worth of of elements. Um, so you're both kind of like exploring a map, expanding across a map, but you're also playing your own card game. Um, you're not deck building, but you have card economy in this yes. game in a way that was very familiar to me from playing games like Netrunner or Game of Thrones LCG or even Magic because you have a hand of cards that act both as the source for the cards that you're going to play down that are going to give you certain powers. Like your, It makes sense your, your abattoir is going to convert your cattle into meat and the meat's going to be worth more, right? Right. You know, like, and the ones um, that are worth the most points... They uh, they require two different goods sometimes in order to make one of the really valuable good, and sometimes right, those like you have co- to build your own economy Correct. on your board with these kind of permanent cards. But you know you you form them by playing them from your hand. But your hand, the resources in your hand actually are resources too. Yes. So you can convert your card draw into resources that pay out more. And managing your hand is a big part of the game. In a way that was really interesting, it feels like playing the game. It's a it's a it's a board game that often feels more like a card game to me. Yes, um, it's a little multiplayer solitaire. Also, it is quite multiplayer solitaire. And there it, there uh, is there. It does have worker placement. Mm-hmm. You are placing those workers sometimes into common areas, yep. but there is no blocking. So. I would say that generally when there's worker placement with no blocking, I'd no longer consider that a worker placement. I consider that right. more action selection. 
Right. And this definitely, definitely has that. There is really almost nothing that you do that impacts anybody else's choices. This game also had something which I think we're seeing more of in games. And I, I don't know what the right mechanism word for this is, but I'm going to call it like chronicle, a chronicle aspect, which yes. is that the game, like there are multiple versions of this game that that you play out of the box. You can work through the chapters and it's a way of kind of teaching the game as you play it and you can get to more complicated gameplay as you progress through these scenarios that you play. Some of them, I think, are probably just ways of playing the game differently. But like, so like you're not ready for some of the more advanced scenarios when you first start playing the game and the game teaches you correct um, and, as you go. And they, they each tell a story. The story does evolve to some degree. It's not, it's not hugely a storytelling it's, game. It's not, certainly not a story you're going to take seriously. No, uh, but each game takes about 90 minutes. When you add up all of the different chapters that come just in the box, it's around 12 hours of gameplay. So that's, that's a lot. You know, that's, that's, I think, six different chapters are in the game on the whole. And looking at the various bags that had the pieces for Chapter 5 and things like that, some of them are quite different and really probably throw a wrench in everything you'd come to expect for the game, which for a medium-weight game, I think that's a really good choice. You know, because medium-weight games, especially things that are engine optimization, which essentially is what this is, a medium-weight engine optimization game may not have that many plays for me, mm -hmm. right? Eventually, I may get right. tired of it. But if there are all these different scenarios that play quite differently... Well, it wasn't... Yeah, and some of the scenarios required a different map, right? Like, there yes. were additional boards there's in a, the box. There's a water map that's for the... There's a there's a fishing or water-based uh, episode, I think episode five or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. They look they look quite interesting. I'm eager to play that game again. Yeah, I liked it quite a bit. I liked it quite a bit as well. And then the last game we played on Thursday was The Magnificent. The Magnificent was number one at Essen in the Board Game Geek Geek Buzz. So we were very eager to get that to the table. It is a gorgeous looking game. It is a, a very dark board. It's a it, it's kind of dark. <laughs> kind of what, in Nightmare Circus land here a little bit? A little bit, yeah. Carnival I, land. I guess, that's, I guess that's true. I think Art Deco is the, mm -hmm. is, is the design scheme of it. We're carnies, circus folk. <laughs> Very small hands. We uh, are basically trying to put together the best carnival that we can. We're going to use a common pool of dice that is going to be rolled. The dice have, you know, obviously you have different numbers on them, but they also have different colors. Common the, pool for all players. Common pool for all players. Then draft. Which makes it not multiplayer solitaire. Mm -hmm. uh, when you take a die, you're going to be able to use that die. To There's do also action spaces, right? Yes. Um, well, uh, oh, we're not. We're not restricted. Yeah, we're not restricted in how we place our assistance in that, right? No, we're not competing to grab any of those. Okay. No. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So not really. No, not 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 in that. But sense. we are competing for the dice. Correct. And when you take a die, you can use that die value to do one of basically one of three things. You're going to use it to construct tents. And the color of the tent, there, there, each, there are three colors of tents, and each tent has two sizes, one that takes up four spaces and one that takes up six spaces. And you have your own fair map that's right in front of you, fair ground. 
as you use it, you're going to be covering up various um, resources that you then gain. Things like an extra assistant or tickets, which are victory points in the game. The, the person who sells the most tickets wins the game. Uh, money, which is surprisingly tight because you have to pay for the dice that you use, which is a mechanic that we're going to come back to <laughs> when we talk about Crystal Palace. Um, so one of the things you can do in the game is you can build your tents. Building tents is very important because a, 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 and a second thing you can do is you can travel. When you travel, you're going to be moving the caravan of the color of your die around a circular map. And when you cross a crystal, you're going to get one of those crystals. Crystals add two to the value of that color die. So that die becomes crystals. More, yeah. They're a kind of currency that you're going to spend in a bunch of different ways. Correct. Correct. Game. Um, Going back to the tents, uh, if you have a five die and you get to use that, a five die will allow you to build maybe one small tent. But if that die value gets up to nine, suddenly you can build a small and a large tent. So the higher the value, the greater the ability uh, that, that you unlock. And when you, get a, when you recruit a second die of the same color, they are additive. So you're going to add in the value together. But that is going to become more and more expensive. The third thing you can do is you can put on shows. That's perf the perform action. And when you do the perform action, the perform action, there are cards, perform cards that you're going to be drafting throughout the game. And they will require certain things to be done. First of all, they will require a certain combination of tents to be, uh, to, to yeah. be in, your, in your set. Uh, and sometimes they will also require you to sacrifice uh, crystals, crystals, in, yep, in order to in order to be able to perform that, and then you will gain victory points based on the performances that you're able to pull off. It's a solid game. This I, game had two things going against it in Trey's book of preferences. One, it has a polyominoes aspect, you know, the Tetrisy thing. Where trade you're, you're, like Tetris, right? I generally, I generally don't. That's not, that's not necessarily fun for me. It's fun for a lot of people. Um, it also had kind of a combination of abstractness to it in terms of like the wheels and getting the crystals yep. and kind of a opaque symbi uh, symbology that makes that I tend to find inaccessible. Like to me, Trismegistus is the ultimate example of this of like a lot of s symbols and it's hard to kind of figure out what anything means or why I should care about any of it. Despite that. Mm-hmm. I found myself really liking this game. Yeah. So like it's not in my wheelhouse, but I but I still liked it. I think this game uh this it doesn't look anything like a Nuva Rosenberg game. I think it's but it is using a lot of kind of like the foundation that he did with Polyomino. Yes. Uh, you know, both in patchwork and even, you know, playing, you know, we we've, we've played East for Odin or yeah, like this is certainly something set up in um, like Caverna where, you know, you place your polyomino over something, you get, you know, you get a reward for covering things. Yes. Like, you know, this um, this is embracing that and taking it uh, to another level that that does make it feel di really different. It doesn't feel like an Uwe Rosenberg game, but I think there's a lot of underlying, underlying mechanics to what's going on there. And it... it Listen, it is not a heavy game. It is... Its weight currently is 3.13, so... so middle brow like like not not hard to teach not hard to play it isn't incredibly complex it plays in 60 to 90 minutes so it is not a very long game either so 
if you have a group that likes that medium weight slot, that's what that's what you like. You're not into the super heavy stuff. This is a medium game that is very well constructed. I think that mm-hmm. it, it gives you a lot of bang for the one hour playtime buck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, and right, it has a similar thing to Coimbra. Also, the you know you're grabbing the dice yes. that become yours that you then place there. We had a number of moments in the game that I tend I tend to think these are good moments in games of oh you just took the die I wanted. Yes. Like we're, we're, race, we're, we're racing for certain dice, and we even had the, oh, you, you took the act I wanted, uh, because yep. there's a, only a certain number of acts out there, and they require a certain combination of tents, and you're trying to build your own uh, portfolio of games on your own board that's going to make for this spectacular final performance that works with all the different kind of tents you have, and so a lot of times you're eyeing, one's going to come up that's like, oh, I know that's going to be a big score for me. And then, but you didn't, you know, someone else takes it right in front of you. Yeah, I, I, I agree with every single will, one of those Will that points. tent still be there? I need to take this other action first. Will that tent still be there when I, you know, when I want to take it? I, I tend to feel like those are, those are good things. Uh, you know, when you, as you understand the game more, you're having to take it, uh, think of more things going into each move you make. And so it's less rote and more I'm juggling a number of different concerns when I make my move. We found that we played a rule wrong in terms of uh, the cost of the dice. <laughs> Shocking. Well, you know, listen, we, we played a ton of games well, let's and ta- we let's had talk to about learn. That. This is BGG, unlike almost any other con I've been, has almost a culture of people grabbing a game out of the library, going to a table, taking out the rules, and reading them and learning them at the table. Yes. Which tends to be something that I hate. Yes. But. That, that that is the culture of VGG Con, and we had to do it a number of times. I have never sped read more rule sets. It's hard over the course of four days. It's really hard. How, how many how many of these games did I end up trying to teach? It it was having literally we, read the rules ten minutes before, two minutes before. Thank God I was with you and Mark because you're 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 a good team because like you had to speed read and give us the initial read, and then. Sometimes I would be like, that doesn't sound right. Whereas Mark would go, the next step would be like, I know that's not right. And he would start reading. Like we would yes. get, we would get the real rules halfway into the game. I'll, I'll do, what, the, <laughs> I'll do the teach and the overview and, and tell, and tell you a story of how to play this game thematically. And it'll be 80% right. And then Mark will go in with the second draft and he will be like, ah, no, it's, it's generally after turn that. three, right? It's, no, <laughs> it's not that it's this and it's this because of this. And then this is why this thing makes sense now. And yeah, then, like, oh, okay. Yeah. That makes that's better. Which, that's better than way, than way you taught it. <laughs> that happened a number enough. of times, but, but, but right. You, it, this is, you did, you did a great job considering that was the situation. I'm completely spoiled and that I tend to walk into, you know, either Matt's game night or your game night and somebody's already played this game or, yes. or if you're Matt, you like, this is the thing you love to do is to read the rules, watch the, watch it played on YouTube, play it solo yourself first and then teach people. And I appreciate that. Matt as and, I, a player. Matt and I are, are always ready to teach a new game and we, and we study it beforehand. Yeah. We I, love it. I like teaching games I have played before and have been taught to me, like starting from the rule book. Yes. I just think it's very, very hard and you know, life is short. So why do it? Anyway, <laughs> anyway, that was uh, that was the magnificent. I would say that, that for me personally, um, I I tend to like harder core, heavier games than what the magnificent is. But if you are not, if the if the vital assertas of the world are probably not quite your jam, 
I think Magnificent is a fantastic midweight game. Yeah, I, it's, I really a, it's, a good, it's a good game. Uh, we'll probably do a review of it at some point, but it should be on people's list to, to check out, see if it's your thing. Let's get to Friday. Friday, we began the day by playing one of the games we were most looking forward to. We played Marco Polo 2. Uh, do we need to say? Simone Luciani and Danielle Tashini were the designers. The artist was Dennis Lohausen, the same designer as the as the first one. Marco Polo 2, in service of the con. Um, good points. It felt like I was playing Marco Polo. Yep. It was very different, though. It was looser. It was looser. A Marco Polo can feel very punitive. It feels mm-hmm. very, very hard to do almost anything you want to do. Movement yes. is so so painful to i can't do the thing i want to do and i'm sitting in one spot sometimes yes yes and there is a you know there are two strategies there's the move around and pop all over the board and there is the complete contracts and some people just just play the worker placement game some people have found that you can never leave venice you don't have to and complete a whole bunch of contracts and almost win the game. And to some, that might be a little bit of a flaw in the original Marco Polo. <laughs> Clearly, the designer thought it was. A little bit. So in this game now, movement becomes much easier. There are actually three different movement spaces that you can choose between. One that costs two coins, but you can only move one space. One that costs two dice, and you can move up to three spaces. And one that costs three dice, and you can move all the way up to six spaces. And there is the costs for movement are now all on the board. There are a lot of costs on the board. The costs in money, the costs in in camels, and a new cost being you have to pick up guild tokens to take certain routes. Mm-hmm. And cross, Did you mention like jade is a new, cross those routes. new resource? No, I didn't. There is a, there is a resource yeah. called jade, which is kind of like a master resource that you can always highly exchange. highly flexible. That you can exchange for Again, almost anything. Again, going to the whole loose... You know, the, the, the tightness of the first game, Jade, is kind of like your super resource that you can use in a lot of different ways to is, enable you to do the things you want to do. If you think rubies in Caverna, yeah. then that's pretty much what Jade is in this game. Um, but interestingly, if you want to play the contract game, and the contract game is still one of the two ways yeah. you're going to score a lot of points, the contracts are no longer at the bottom of the board ready to be taken by anyone sitting Just anywhere. sitting in Venice. You must go out and you must occupy cities. You must put your trading posts into cities. The because cities become the markets for you. Yes, the, the cities are the, are the places where there are the contracts. And the more cities with contracts you get to, the higher a variety that you can choose from to put together your contracts. I like this very much. I think that this is a very good development in the game, even if I kind of miss how tight the game was. Mm -hmm. I I feel like this game may be too forgiving for my own particular tastes. That said, I like very much the idea that you have to go out and and achieve certain locations, reach certain locations in order to be able to to, to start to focus on your trading game, on your uh, contract fulfillment game. I yeah, I liked it better. It was it was an improvement um in terms of of what I like because I felt like the first one you kind of really understood the game well and you linked all your moves together and you could have these amazing, you know, turns with a lot of things happened or you didn't, you know, and, and that was a, 
like there was a pretty big gap between being able to do what you want and you didn't want to do. And this just smooths all of that out. And I think you could entirely play this game and come in last and you still felt like you'd like you did a lot of really interesting things and played your own game and that w- and that can be a pleasant experience whereas I think when you got your butt kicked in Marco Polo the first game you you you'd have a higher frustration factor and felt like I watched everyone else do these amazing things and I don't and I don't know I may not even understand why my game wasn't like that which is exactly why I prefer the original Marco Polo. <laughs> that's who Tom <laughs> Tom is. So one thing that is interesting uh, setting the scene at uh, BGG Con here is we spent a lot of time in the hot games room. Hot games hot coming games. in. Um, this is a very small corner of the actual con in there terms a, of like the number of people who are in there compared to the you know giant you know, football field ballroom sized ballroom that is or, the size of a football field. Really is. It's a, it's massive and it is full to capacity. You were looking around. I think it was the perfect size for for what the con was because it was one of these things where you would walk in at full capacity and you'd be like, I don't think there's a table here. But if you look around, you will find there was always at least a table available to you and very rarely many more. Yeah, you could always find a table uh, and players and someone to teach you a game in the ballroom. We spent a lot of time in in hot games, which was about forty tables. Would you say, like in that room? Uh, let's see. I would say if, five times. I, I think it's probably closer to twenty eight, thirty. Okay, something like that. Small, but small room. We spent we spent a lot of time there. We and spent. We basically camped there, and it was it was because that's where a lot of the newer the stuff from Essen that's not available in the United States yet. That's that's where it was. Not not everything fell into that category. Like tapestry was was in there. Um, yeah, there were there were a few games uh, that were now the interesting thing or the thing I was going to say was it was interesting to see what games were the hardest to actually get plays in. Yes, like we even we were dying to replay Crystal Palace. We'll get we'll we'll get to that. We had trouble like get, playing Crystal Palace. Like we had to queue up a lot of time to play it multiple times. Taverns of Tiefenthal was was a hard get too yeah. as well. Um, I, I mean, people that. were playing playing the hell out of Tapestry. Uh, but Marco Polo 2 wasn't that hard of a game to to do, I didn't think. No, it w- it was not one of the harder ones. And that, it's a little bit of a head-scratcher that for me. That and Glenmore 2, I think, were the two of the games that would seem to always mm-hmm. have, a, have a seat available. There was one, and just the one table of On Mars, which... Was constantly, constantly full. Especially because it's, it's a long game with a tough teach. Yeah, and, and you really had a... We... We did what we did what we needed to do for our listeners. We posted up in that room all the time. We're boxing people out. We're I'm standing right next to the game that I want to play, and I'm like, they're on turn four or five. Okay, just stand right there, smile at them. If they talk to you, just talk to them and see if you can if you can reserve that next. Yeah, you're sure sometimes they, trying to get people to hand the game off to you yeah, when you're done. Just mad dogging people as they come by, trying to stand next to the same table you're keep standing walking. next to. Keep just, walking, punk. Keep, keep going. But By the did, way, we're wearing you, our Game Brain shirts the entire weekend, so we're any, very intimidating. Any, any negative behavior that we have is just <laughs> totally going to come back to the podcast. It's our baby, um, boob. even to the point of coming, finding out exactly what time the the hot games room opens, getting there ten minutes before it opens, and getting in line to race to the game that we want to play next. So that was that was the majority of our conference in that room. We played some games in the, in the main room. We did some other mm-hmm. things as well. Sure, but there was just there were too many great things that we were dying to try that were in the hot games room. My, my my point in bringing it up is only just that I was surprised that Marco Polo 2 was n- that people weren't queuing up for it 
And so I don't know what that means, but it's a little surprising to me. But it may also be indicative of like the kinds of games that, that we like, we want to play may not be completely representative of the, you know, BGG con, you know, overall gamer. Fair enough. Makeup. It could be. Um, let's talk about a couple of negative things about Marco Polo, too. One of the things I love, love, love to death about the original Marco Polo is the characters. You teach the game. But it's one of my it's probably my favorite game to teach because I teach the game and everybody feels like, okay, I kind of get it. I think I can play. And then I say, wait, 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 we have these characters and I'm going to go through these characters and you're going to choose one of these and they're going to have a special game breaking power. And then I always teach it with the, I, I teach them in groups. I have the, the first group that I teach you that people are like, whoa, those are great powers. That's amazing. Wow. And then I go to the second set and they're like, you got to be kidding me. No, those, I thought those first powers were great. These powers are crazy. And then at the end, you get to the guy that he can choose whatever number on whatever die he wants for the entire game. And they're like, how on earth can these possibly be balanced? And they are. They're amazing. The characters in Marco Polo 2, I do not feel so far. Uh, listen, we're, we're, this is you, not you a review. You want them to be super broken? I want them to be cooler. I did not feel that they were that cool. I did not feel that they were that special. And to make matters worse, they say something. There's like a paragraph at the end of the rules that says, hey, if you want to mix the games and, right. and bring the characters from the other one, bring them with no, there's right. like no, there's no guidelines. There's just no, like there's, throw there's, in. They, yeah. they, just, they just throw that in. And it was one of those things that I thought about. I thought about it. And I'm like, okay, which characters would I bring over and how would they play? And I realized, oh, like you can't bring Mercator over because there is no market. Mm. Right, you can't mm -hmm. you can't do that. The um, Wilhelm, the, the 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 guy who drops trading posts behind him, no matter how far he moves. Well, guess what? One of the now there's an action space. What, for there's that. an action space where yeah. you can drop a second guy, so he becomes much less useful. We have an action space for that. It's the Elizabeth Warren of board games. <laughs> you know, I, I experienced something a little bit differently. I uh, I liked the uh, character I played, and especially because it gave me some direction on a first play. Like it was clear which which way to go, and I did have that moment that oh that's broken, uh, and that came to the uh, character that Mark was playing, where I I had misunderstood exactly what it was at the first, and then he once he actually well. started playing it, I was like oh that is broken, that's crazy what his power is, um so to me that felt like the 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 first game, and I felt like you you the power you took I almost felt like you were taking something that was a little boring. That could be to balance things out because you were clearly the most experienced Marco Polo player, yeah. At the at the table, you you took something that was just kind of like an efficiency character. It was a vanilla guy. Yeah, it was a much more vanilla guy. And maybe that's just my reaction to it is that I, I didn't I didn't really like playing that guy. You, he wasn't interesting. But I think I knew going into it that he probably wasn't. So it, it's probably an unfair statement. We're gonna get some more plays in that. See see how you feel. Um, Big time. Over looking time. forward to that. Next, we played Taverns of Tiefenthal. Taverns of Tiefenthal is a light game. It is not, it's not, it's, it's just not a very heavy game. I think the weight currently is 2.65. So that's, it, way, that's way too high. It plays in, it plays in 60 minutes, mm -hmm. uh, two to four players, uh, Wolfgang Varsh. Hey, what, what, what can you say about Wolfgang Varsh? He is, uh, you know, everything that he has done has turned to gold recently. Um, so Quacks of Quedlinburg, uh, the mind. I mean, the guy is just on an absolute roll, and this is this is no exception. This is a fun game. I really, really enjoyed playing this game. You, everybody starts with a junky little tavern, 
and the tavern has a <laughs> tavern money, full of deadbeats. It, deadbeats, and there's a there's a dog that is just sitting there that's not doing anything. You have a you have a single waitress who isn't particularly good at her job. You have a money pouch that you collect your your money in. You got one bar back who's you know trying to trying to help ferry beer to the customers. And over the course of the game, you're going to be collecting two different types of, of income. You're going to be collecting collecting money from the patrons, and you're going to be making beer, and you're going to be able to purchase better cards. So. You can improve your tavern, and you can improve the people who visit your tavern. Yes. So much like Dominion, what you're doing is is you're looking at a market that has a variety of choices of things. You can buy another waitress, and waitresses give you extra dice that you can roll, which gives you more options. You can get... beer delivery, beer seller guys that get you more and more beer. And on the other side... It's your beer multiplier. Yeah. And you can get fancy patrons that will pay you, that will tip a lot better and Mm -hmm. pay you and and pay you a lot more. Now, interestingly enough, all of these characters that you get, that you shuffle into your deck, when you deal out, you're going to keep dealing your deck out until all the tables in your establishment are full dishwashers, um, barbacks, waitresses, they don't take a table space. It's only the patrons that take the table space. So sometimes you're dealing out six, seven, eight, nine cards, and you're getting a big, massive turn where you have actually a lot of options and a lot of things to do. But each one of these characters requires a die to activate them. And they have very different numbers. So to get your beer production up, it tends to be ones or sixes, but never both that you use for those things. Yeah, there's a die drafting aspect of this game too which is cool because what happens is is there's each person has four white dice and three dice of their color the dice of your color only come out if you have a waitress in in play yeah it's a special correct right but with the four regular dice you're going to roll those four dice you're going to put them on your little coaster and you're going to choose one of those dice and you pass three to the person on your left you get three from the person on your left and you choose the next one so think um seven wonders with dice and it's 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 a it's a good mechanic. It's really simple. It's really easy to understand. But the thing we like about the game the most, or the thing I like about the game the most, is that the your player board is a puzzle piece. It is it has several different puzzle piece parts to it that you can pull out and flip over to the opposite side for a cost. For nine bucks, you can turn the the dishwashing station into a dishwasher mm-hmm. who is who is working hard to make things better. You can turn your your junky little beer cellar uh, into a full on distillery or, or or whatever you would call that. You could convert a brewery, the dog in the corner into a permanent waitress. Correct. I don't know if that's offensive or not. It's weird. <laughs> it's weird. You've just hired a waitress. You uh-huh. you yeah, you, yeah. you got rid of the dog. You've not magically hired... transformed right. her. And, uh, you know. Okay. Um, the change purse you can turn into a full-on cash register. So, so yeah, what, what Tom's talking about, this game's table presence is, or table appeal, yes. is incredibly high. Yes. This is like wingspan level of table presence, tail to walk in level, or higher even. Yes. Wonderfully thematic. It plays ex- like... It's very cool to be able to see your tavern, the the way it looks, transform over the course of the game. And we own a copy of this, so we will be doing a full review later, but just suffice it to say that there may not be a lot of meat on the bones, but the theme is so much fun that... 
every ounce of every ounce of it's yes it's definitely fun when the dice go your way there's a lot of die rolling it's that kind of game so so it's not going to be my kind of thing yes um and you can definitely whiff oh yeah like you can whiff hard in this game and you can be watching everyone else's beautiful ha- you know taverns being converted while you you know you got this expensive patron and then you you know you couldn't hit the die that was going to give you the five gold that was going to make the huge difference to buy the thing um, also, like Dominion, the big point scorers are the nobles, and you can get the mm-hmm. nobles to come to your place. The problem is, is that the nobles score a lot of points for you, but they're really bad tippers. Yeah, this which is a, I, which is exactly like like getting mm-hmm, the, the way it scoring up your cards, hands the, in, the scoring cards in, in Dominion. Yeah, so it's a little it, less punitive because it tends to happen all at the end. You it know, t- tends to be more of it at the end. That's for sure. So it's not trying to actively frustrate you the way that Dominion. Uh, kind of did I, I think this is a really cool game i suspect this will be a pretty big hit uh it's not my it's not my kind of it's not my kind of game i want to play with the advanced cards we only played the, mm-hmm. the the basic vanilla version of it i would very much like to play with those cards and i hope that wolfgang varsh comes out with a gamers game set of cards for it because i think this is the kind of game that if you had more card variety, if you had more, just more variety in general, there's a lot of strategic depth that this game could get to that the basic game just hasn't yet. But once again, we only play the basic version and it does come with some advanced rules Mm -hmm. and some advanced card sets. So we're looking forward to checking that out. Uh, Last thing on Friday, I had a a game that that I played with Mark while Trey was uh, off doing other things. It's a Wonderful World also got a very high review at Essen. It was very well regarded. I will tell you that it is a game in which uh, basically it is Seven Wonders. um, Yeah, it's kind of Seven Wonders. You are building, you're drafting cards. You are choosing the cards that you are going to discard. And when you discard a card, you get a, you know, basically one resource per card. And there are five different, six different colors of resources. There's the white resources are the lowest value resource, then the black, then all the way up to the gold resources and eventually the red resources, which you can't even get. The idea being that when you discard a card, you get the um, recycle value of that card, which is just one resource. Or you play the card to your tableau in the construction section, and that essentially is a place where you are building that card. And that card shows you in the upper left what it's going to require. It's going to require three whites and a black. It's going to require two greens and a yellow in order to build. And when you've successfully built them, you get the victory points on that card. You get the benefit of that card. Sometimes they they give you a windfall of resources. Uh, for your game. So very much uh, uh, Seven Wonders. At the end of the game, I ended up saying to myself, why would I play this instead of Seven Wonders? There's a couple things that it does that, that are that are better. It's, it's kind of, it's less rules heavy than Seven Wonders. It's a lot hmm. cleaner in the sense that the points that you're, there, isn't, there is no uh, science category. Mm-hmm. The points that you're getting are on the card. The resources that you get in addition to that there are there are basically there's the um 
capitalists and the generals. And you win those by having by collecting the most of each color resource. You are going to win that category of resource, and each one gives you either a general or a capitalist for a you know as a reward. And each one of those are worth a victory point. Some cards will give you more victory points for having one type or the other. Um, at the end of the day. I decided that I don't really like the game that much. I think it's fine, but I would much rather play Seven Wonders. There's there's nothing that there's no itch that it scratches that Seven Wonders doesn't and doesn't mm-hmm. do better. Okay. Saturday. Saturday began with On Mars. We got there at 7:50 in the morning to jump into that room. You did. You got there at 7:50. I got there at 7:50. I was there at 8:02. You were there at 8:02. Mark was there at 8:04. And much shame was, was dealt out <laughs> to him for that. Uh, we res- I really tried to get there at 8. I really... Well... At, at this point in the con... Did, did you really get this, there at 8.02 or did you not get there at 8.02? I was physically present. Your body was there at 8.02. Yeah, this was the point. This was um, Saturday morning. So I've been here since Sunday night. And I think this was the point where the, the toll of the con was, was having an effect upon me. And I had not slept well. Uh, the night before, and so it's time to play On Mars by Vito Lacerda. The hardest, most Baroque <laughs> game. I had watched the, I had watched a playthrough and I had read the rules, so I had done both of those before we sat down because it's a Vito Lacerda game. You're not going to be able to just you know, start reading the rules and explain it and understand it. <laughs> There's so many times you sit down and you kind of say, let's just start playing and we'll kind of figure it out as we go. That's not this That's guy. That's not going to work. That's, gonna That's work not here. this guy. So we sat down and we started going. And um, this is on the Baroque side of Vidal Lacerda. Some of his designs are easier to grok. I think the Gallerist is not that hard a game to, to right. understand. I think Lisboa is trickier. I think mm-hmm. Lisboa is yep. a little more opaque, a little harder to really see how all of these gears intertwine. I would say that that uh, on Mars, none, none of his games are an easy teach. No, no. But there's certainly layers here of of difficulty. But on Mars w- was particularly tricky. Mm-hmm. It was difficult. And it, by the way, it could be that it's Saturday morning. We've been learning games. We've been, you know, our brains are fried. As much as they can be. Certainly mine was. But um, the essential idea of On Mars is that we are building Mars settlements. This is not terraforming Mars. This is a game in which we are just starting out. We are just arriving to Mars and we are trying to establish settlements and and build. In fact, getting getting down to the planet and back up to orbit is a part of the game. It is indeed. There is there are uh, two sides to the board. The the I'm sorry, two halves to the board. The left half and the right half. The left half are the orbital actions, which you can do at the space station. These are things like uh, downloading blueprints from uh, sent from Earth. These are getting resources from the stockpile. Basically, you know, transport ships are coming and flying in these resources that you're then going to take down to the planet and you're going to use. Then there are the actions that happen on the planet side. Those are things like building structures and improving structures that you've built, moving your rovers and moving your robots. Robots are used to construct things, and rovers are used to explore and unlock uh, exploration uh, tiles that are out there and to suck up these uh, crystals that are... that a lot of construction will unearth and, and reveal that 
are very valuable sort of wildcard resources that can be used for a wide variety of things. There is, at the end of every round, basically everybody takes one action, and then there is a shuttle round. And in the early game, every single shuttle round, the shuttle moves either from uh, Mars to space or from space to Mars. You can hop on and hitch a ride for free down there during a shuttle round. If you are out of position and you can't take the shuttle, there are actions which will allow you at some price to be able to transform yourself from one, one side of the board to the other side of the board otherwise. Are you lost yet? Because we were. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly one of us more so than others. There's probably a point where you're traveling to Mars where you, you kind of make the turn, like you get caught by the gravity or you just continue out in on into space. Yes. And I think I failed to kind of make my orbit that that morning. You missed the window. Yeah. You missed Uh, the window. So we'll, we'll circle back back to this at a later date because this is one of my favorite designers and I'm really interested in learning how to play this game. Uh, so, it did not happen on that morning for me though. Trey pulled the ripcord. <laughs> Trey pulled the ripcord. He went back to the room to go back to sleep. The, the, the There were people that were cleaning the room at the time and he said, come back later. And they said, no, we can't. Your room is too disgusting. That's not what they said, but it's they, effectively what they said. They said you can't. So he went down to the lobby to wait until the room was clean and fell asleep in the lobby of the hotel. I did not fall. I was nodding off. Nodding off. I, at Very no well. point did I sleep in the lobby. But Very it was well. it, if I was feeling like I'm feeling kind of tired and I can't really understand this, it's because I was really tired. And, you know, people have gone to conventions. You've experienced this before where you're you're running on adrenaline, adrenaline for a long time and it's fun. Oh, yeah. And that's fine. And sometimes you get sick. Um, but then other times you're just you just have you're completely on empty. And that's where I was that morning. That said, Mark and I did play on Mars. And I got to tell you, I really enjoyed it. I really it is a bear to learn. And it is very, very opaque in terms of figuring out, okay, I'm doing this action and this action helps me incrementally do this other thing and I have to figure out what is the sequence of things to do. And it's only, you know, maybe maybe a great rules explanation will get that to you, but there's so many rules. There's so much overhead. It's going to, to be understand worth, what's worth going the study, on. probably. I, I believe that the juice is going to be totally worth the squeeze because it is a very thematic, very, very interesting game with, with very complex interlocking mechanisms. And this may be his heaviest game. Would you? So that'd be your guess right now? So far, I think it is. Currently on BoardGameGeek, it's got a rate, uh, rate a weighting of 4.41 out of 5 which wow. is very high. It's about, yeah. I think it is. I think it is. Um, is it going to break us? Is it going to be the thing that, well, you've gone too far, Vittle? I don't think so. Uh, I've, I've very much enjoyed the first play of it. I, I, there were many discoveries during the play where I realized, oh, this is what he did. This is why he did that. Holy cow. When I build this, it unlocks this, which allows me to do this, and nobody else can do this yet. And that is a huge advantage that I now have that I just discovered. There's a lot going on in the game. There's a lot of very interesting choices all over the place. Ian O'Toole did the artwork, as he has so many times, Mm -hmm. knocked it out of the park. It is a gorgeous-looking game. It is a very, very interesting uh, a, a game to to look at, but it's a bear. It is a it is a bear to teach, and it is a bear. Your first play is going to be a tough. It's not, one. it's not one to break out with uh, the relatives at Thanksgiving. I would not. 
I would not recommend that. But on Mars, uh, we can't wait. I can't wait to play it more. That's all I can. Oh, what I Unlike can say about it is that I our cannot next play. game. Our next game was a perfect game to break out with the relatives at Thanksgiving. Probably the most shocking game <laughs> of the con for us. All right. So when I first arrived at the convention, sat down with some people to play some little, you know, to do a little little game of something. I think he was the, one of the guys that we played Cooper Island with, actually. Okay. No, no, no. Mm, yes, it was. We played Cooper Island with this gentleman, and at the end of it, I said, have you, uh, have you checked out anything good yet? And he looked at me, and he said, with a straight face, Jaws. Was this Monty Bingham? Is this, or is this, this was this was not. This, this was, was okay. This was, this was a, another person who was not familiar with our with our podcast, um, and he just looked at me and said Jaws. Jaws. And I looked at him and I said, Jaws. Jaws. You mean you mean the the game that is a Target exclusive that is only sold in in Target stores? He looked at he looked me dead in the eyes and he said, "I'm serious." Jaws. Jaws. <laughs> Play Jaws. So sure enough, we had uh, we went back to the main ballroom. We left the uh, you know after you played on Mars, everybody's looking at you when you get up from the table. They're all really jealous. You can feel the heat, and and you have to leave the room. You know the, you're not allowed back. Right. In the, you're not allowed in the hot games room for a little while after that because everybody. It's like when you're eliminated fr- uh, from uh, World Poker. Yes. You know, well, like, well, here's the thing. You have like an exit interview. Exactly. You have an exit interview and everybody is, is booing or cheering. No, the worst thing was actually you. You caused us a big problem. What? You caused us a huge, huge problem. What? Because after the rules explanation, you left. So we played three-player on Mars. Oh, that looks Mars. bad. That's inefficient. Oh, people were upset. What happened was every 15 minutes in a three-hour game, people came by and invariably the conversation was this. Have you started yet? Mm-hmm. Have you done the rules teach yet? Mm-hmm. Because there's an empty seat for the game that everybody wants to play. Why are you psychopaths playing a four-player game that that has one copy in the entire convention? Why are you playing with only three? It was also the case that while you were giving the teach, people kept on coming up and correcting some rule you were teaching. Yep. Like the, the people had played this before. Yes. And liked it. Yes. Clearly. And they had gotten the teach. Um and we're swooping like everybody like it was an indication of like of of the quality of the game it was like they couldn't help but just like swing by and check in and say how's it going who have you you know type of thing and two, then different, you would, two different people trying trying to be helpful it was helpful it was annoying is what it was no but it was also helpful yeah. i was i it was, was helpful to you right because you were I, trying to I, teach I, the I wanted game to get properly. it i wanted to get it right i wanted yeah. to get it right i think it basically did with their help, without their help, I would I would not have gotten it uh, completely right. But yeah, it was one of those games that everybody was circling that table the entire time we but were playing Jaws. it. Speaking of circling, <laughs> speaking of circling, we went and played Jaws in the main room, and I got to tell you, I think that I had no more fun at that convention yeah. than I had playing Jaws. That was the most fun game we played. It was amazing. I don't know if it's the best game we played. It's a pretty good game. No, no, no. It, but, and it was a lot of fun. It's it was not the a best great, experience. It's not a great game, but it's a good. If you like Jaws, you it, can get this game at Target for nineteen ninety nine. It's listed for thirty. When I got it at Target in Galveston, Texas, this weekend, it was nineteen ninety nine. It's incredible. 
Yeah. It's incredible. It looks wonderful. It is a, it, it's just a small little box game. It's done by Ravensburger. So, you know, Hey, you know what? That's not bad. That, yeah. That's a, that's a pretty good thing, but you get it out and like every piece is so perfectly designed. The little, the little barrels that go in the water. The, the, the game has two parts. It follows the movie really well. The first part of the act game one and is, two. is a map of Amity Island and the, <laughs> the shark is eating swimmers and everybody, so you, it's the shark. 16 different One player individuals. is the shark, and then the other three players are Hoopa. Um, you have the shark hunter, who is... Well, Quint. Quint, yes. and then you have ah, Chief Brody. Anti-shark cage. Shark. <laughs> cage goes in the water. Shark is in the water. You're in the water. Farewell and adieu to my sweet Spanish lady. So it's got a lot of LARP opportunities, as you can see. We um, LARPed the heck out of this thing for two hours, or for an hour and a half, how long the game was. We could not stop ourselves. We were laughing so, so hard. You have three people chasing the shark around the island as the shark is consuming a large number of swimmers, including possibly Chief Brody's son, which is worth double. And then depending on how that first part of the game goes, you then flip the, the board and you enter the stage in which the shark is squaring off against the humans uh, on the orca out in the middle of the sea. Quint's boat. Quint's, Quint's, Quint's boat. And so now this it. is a battle to the death between the shark and the players, and the shark wins by either completely destroying the boat or eating. Killing everyone, all the people. Or killing all, all of the people. And so how well you did in the first half, like the shark gets more shark special power cards. The humans, if they did a little bit better in the start, they get a little bit more equipment. And then you have kind of a wonderful... Uh, game in which the shark kind of can make three different approaches to the ship on on every turn and you know it, it reproduces that part in the movie where the the humans on board the boat are kind of looking in all directions it's like watch your side of the boat you over here why weren't you looking you know th this type of thing and you're trying to decide you're trying to guess where the shark's going to surface and each time you're guessing, I think it's gonna he's gonna show up here and I'm gonna attack him with my you know, with my baseball bat or and I'm gonna I'm over here playing it safe and I'll shoot it with the harp harpoon gun. Um, each character starts with two items for the second half of the game, and then there are common crew items. Yeah. The number of common crew items you get is entirely dependent on how many swimmers the shark ate in the first half. <laughs> right. It gets lower and lower the more swimmers get eaten. And the shark has special power yeah. cards that allow the shark to do amazing things. And the shark gets more and more of those the more people who were eaten on Amity Island. But there's a really good game there, which is the mind game. Like you were in a mind battle with the shark. Yes. Where it's played, like it I really makes sense for the shark to attack it. A. <laughs> Tom's not going to do that, is he? He's going to—is he going to go to see? Like, and so you—it's very much kind of an you creates the iocane moment. Yes. Of where is the shark going to surface? And different people can, like, you can coordinate. Clearly, or, I cannot choose the boat location <laughs> next to me. <laughs> right. Uh, this this is some fantastic uh, gameplay. This this uh, the shark can be very clever. You need to outthink the shark. Shark was pretty clever. <laughs> <laughs> And this is a game you can absolutely play with your relatives at Thanksgiving because I did it. I went and bought the copy. I brought it back. Um, and then I kind of, uh, I, I was going to play, but then we had four people that wanted to play. So I just adjudicated Good. the thing. And we had a, you know, an epic uh, shark battle that kind of went right down to the end. They were down to three pieces of boat left. Um, and, oh. and we had a very... Uh, uh, courageous Chief Brody who was pursuing the shark in the water. 
<laughs> Quint did in our me, game. Quint did a little bit in our well, game. Well, Quint in our game, strangely, despite being a shark hunter, seemed intent upon rescuing swimmers. He went very against character. He was in useless. our game. It was useless. Right. We felt that Mark, who played who played Quint, could have left the table at any point, <laughs> and the game would have went better for the humans. Yeah. But uh, so this this is a game. Did your, did your family like it? Oh, very much so. Oh yeah. It's yeah, a, it's a joy. And it it, it was pl- one um what my I have a second cousin who's maybe 23 or 24 mm-hmm. and had not seen the movie but now really wants to see the movie. Oh, it's 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 I think it's so much better once you've seen the movie, yes. but it's actually a pretty good advertisement for the movie, so it's not bad. But the mechanics are so simple. Yes. That this is an easy to explain game. It like you walk up and it might look complicated. It's not. It has a very kind of uh, easy core loop every round of like you have three actions. These are the things you can do. And it's also a surprisingly social game where the three humans need to coordinate their actions against the shark, especially in the first half of the game. Yes. In, in both halves, really. Yeah, I mean, yeah. They, they really need to figure out what they're doing. It's a good game. It's a very good game. Uh, the one negative is I believe. So the shark has a hidden movement aspect. So they're writing on a, a little pad of paper. And I got to see 15 other pads of paper, piece, pieces of paper from the previous round, uh, which confirmed my suspicion, which is the game has its finger on the scales. The game wants the shark to win round one and eat a lot of swimmers. Yeah. And then the game wants the humans to win in the end. So it wants to mimic the movie. Because of that, I don't know how much like the will the could the best shark player in the world win the second act? Can the best humans in the world win the first act? I feel like it's probably going to be same old, same old once you've played it a few times. I think that there are easy house rules that can change that up and make it more of a more of a competition on both sides of the uh, of the coin. Um, but I do think that it's probably going to need that because I do think the the scales are tipped. The experience of this game is like participating in a movie. Yes, and so there is. I think Tom is right that there's some underlying structure there. Uh, that said, I think he's making a big deal about about nothing. Um, I, this is not a game that's going to be played at the World Board Gaming Championships. This is not a game where I, ultimately I'm super concerned about balance. This is a game about a shark and three people on a on a boat. And I think if you know, even then, like I think we argued about like how often should the shark win. Uh, I think it's a four player game. If the shark wins 25 percent of the time. That's probably okay. I think you suspect that it's not even 25%. I think it's less, yes. Okay, fine. Considerably less. It doesn't matter. It's a lot It's a lot of fun. And listen, these days, especially if you got two or three good plays out of a board game, especially with your family, you're, you're golden. And then if Tom wants to do his own, you know, special add-ons to make the super balanced game of Jaws, you know. Here's my thing. You go my for thing it. is, is that I enjoy this game so much that I want to play it many more than two times. I want to be able to play this game ten times. That's how much I like it. That's how much I like it. And I okay. I so do look think for the awesome. the Jaws uh, sequel, Jaws Two, by Tom to, to correct the, revenge, the flaws. Jaws, Jaws the revenge. Jaws the revenge to to address <laughs> the flaws of this really uh, fun game. Look, coming, you coming soon. You weren't the shark. You don't understand. Self published. Okay, I did everything right on Amity. Okay, I ate I ate Brody's son. 
Okay, I consumed Brody's son and tons of other. You are right that there is an underlying structure that is not immediately obvious, which is that in a sense, like the shark really only has like three turns. Yes, and he's going to do a lot of damage on those three turns. Yes, like you, you, you could be incompetent as the shark, and it could end sooner than that. But generally, the humans are going to get you round three or four, and you're and the shark's going to get six to nine swimmers. Like that's. Yeah, pretty uh, ordained. Pr- pretty much what's gonna what's, what's gonna be. That's fine. Okay, fair enough. That was Jaws. Next, we played Sierra West. Sierra West is a game that I had heard some things about, and it sounded like it had some mechanics that were very interesting. And and boy, oh boy, it was absolutely true. Sierra West is by Johnny Pack Canton, which I think is one of the best names for a designer of of uh, a Wild West game. And the artist is Jakub. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, Jacob. Uh, Jacob uh, <laughs> Fashionatowski and... Jakub. 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 Okay. Jakub Fashionatowski. Oh, boy. I massacred that. And Mikhail uh, Jugaj. No idea. Sorry. Um, it is a gorgeous game. It is weight 3.0, basically. It plays in about 60 minutes, 40 to 60 minutes. It is a gorgeous game in which we are taking, we are building a mountain by overlapping cards in a certain fashion to make a mountain of cards. You are playing with your own deck of cards until you can climb up that mountain and get some of the cards at the top. It scales, uh, the top card is flipped over and you can claim it by getting there. And once that is gone, then two cards beneath it will flip over. Whatever is uh, on top is going to flip over. By gaining these cards, you're going to shuffle them into your deck. Uh, the good thing is in this one, unlike Great Western Trail, you could put the card on the top of your deck or on the top of your discard pile. You can choose which, so you can sort of choose when mm-hmm. it comes out. Right. But the interesting thing is that when you deal your three cards to yourself, you are going to choose how they go into your Tableau. Tableau, I think really what it is. is, And the key is is that they are going to overlap. Yeah, you're doing card programming here almost to create a landscape yes. for your workers to traverse triggering different actions. Yes. Very cool. Very cool. It's, and so it has like a tucking mechanism too that you that kind of works like a, similar to the if you played Lagrange yes. where uh, the card, if you just look at the card in its entirety – there's a lot of stuff going on there, and it isn't until you start like placing it, sliding it underneath the game board so that only certain parts of the cards are revealed that you kind of understand the way the cards can be used in, in multiple ways. That's that's very clever. You essentially have two workers, one that uh, moves along the green track of the cards that have overlapped each other, and one that moves along the brown track. And they and depending upon <laughs> which, that game. which order you put those three cards and how they overlap each other, uh, you can create radically different paths that unlock radically different benefits and occasionally costs to them. Very, very interesting. That set, and another cool thing about the game is that it's got four different modes, four different sets. So yeah, a little bit like another game deal. where, um, yeah, there's different chapters that are going to introduce different mechanisms as, as you play and you're expected to play through the scenarios. So given all of that, we were very, very excited to play it um, and I'm sorry to say that it did not live up to its mechanisms. It is a very, very interesting game that plays too quick. There are too few really meaningful, meaty decisions that that you come down to. 
And uh, I suspect that at three and two player, it is going to play better because it's going to be a longer experience. There's going to be, uh, it, it felt like the game ended before we had even got to the most interesting parts of it. Yeah, I had, I had a similar experience where like we were doing the teach and I was like, this is very cool. And then we played it and I was very frustrated with kind of like the lack of real decisions, uh, the lack of kind of interesting things happening. And so like the early promise of the, which is rare. Yeah. The the, the early promise of the teach uh, just what did not come about made me wonder if I was missing something. I don't think that we were though um, the rules are not that hard so it's very clear yeah. we didn't uh, we didn't miss anything so like uh, there's a number of games i played this weekend where i said i'm i'm eager to play a an, another round of this so i can understand it better a lot of those a lot of games made that list this one i would need to hear from an, another player who i knew pretty well to say no 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 this is really good you should give it a, a second shot for me to for me to give it a second shot right now yeah. I, the guy, there's too many games i want to play for me to, to circle back to this if you were a game designer and you're designing card-based games you probably need to play this because it is innovative it's a, it's certainly a study of like oh i can see why it got published yes i can there's a lot to be excited about here but like the actual execution at that point didn't happen no you don't you, you don't need to you don't need to buy this game you don't need to play this game if you're a designer you should seek it out and try it because it's got some very interesting things that it does yeah like Both you in can terms see of the, graphic a, yeah. design, the design of it, it the the, you know, the graphic design of it is is kind of beautiful as well it's very interesting mm-hmm. next Trey, tell me about The Crew, the quest for Planet Nine. This is one of the games that all weekend I wanted to play. And did you ever, you didn't actually get to I play it? I didn't actually get to play it. You did. Yeah. And so this is, in, in German, this is what, Die Crew or something? Die Crew. Die, yeah. Die Crew. Sorry, my, my German is, is poor. Mine is no better. This is just a card game. Uh, it's a trick taking game. It's another Chronicle game. Again, I don't know if that's the right mechanism word for it, but um, every time you play this game, you can play through one of like 50-something scenarios. The theme of the game is I think you are um, you're like on a space station. You're doing missions as part of a human team. Each player is a member of the team, and then the commander uh, is a kind of important um, role in the game. Each hand you play, one person's the commander because this is the person who's dealt the highest trump card. There's only four trump cards. But if you've played Spades or Hearts or Wizard or even Teach You, this is a game in that uh, tradition. Trick-taking. Trick-taking, yeah. Trick-taking games. And essentially, each one of the scenarios is a different puzzle for you as a group to solve. So a little bit like Hanabi. A little bit like Hanabi. In the sense that you're trying to take tricks, but what you really want is to solve the scenario, the commander has to take tricks one and six and things like that, right? Yeah, each one of these introduces like a a new rule and they they can be very different. It's not necessarily uh, progressive and the game restricts the amount of communication you have. You're not allowed to disclose the contents of your hand. It does have some very simple... Uh, mechanisms for how you can communicate some information. For example, most of the scenarios involve you being able to play a single card face up that you have not played yet. You're not actually introducing it into the tr- into the trick, mm-hmm. but you can signal like, here's a card, and I have a little token that can indicate this is my highest card of this suit, this is my lowest card of this suit, or this is my only card of this suit. That's a valuable piece of information to your fellow players to help them decide what they should lead in order to achieve the rounds of the game. Um, 
simple game. It's a like it's a good prison game because you could completely reconstruct this just with you know <laughs> two, two decks of cards. Other than the book of scenarios, which kind of each one of them introduces a different rule that you have to play with, and they get increasingly like you you don't want to just flip to scenario forty and play that. You need to have kind of learned some of like the rules of trick-taking games as you play the game in order to build up to the more difficult scenarios so i love teach you it's one of my favorite games of all time Uh, i there's nothing i like playing with my wife better than this um i love the mind i love the experience of playing the Mm -hmm. mind this to me feels like a game that might have a lot of legs like it's there's so much going on right it has a fairly easy to understand basic mechanism that is varied tremendously over the various scenarios. It seems really cool. Yeah. I, I, and it's, you're just going to buy it and it's going to be, you know, it's a card game. So what's it, what's it going to cost? It's, you can't get it now. Not not in the U S yet. Yeah. You can't, you can't get it yet. And I could even see like, you're going to buy this and then people are going to do a bunch of their own scenarios uh, for it. So, but this kind of hitting that nice design sweet spot where it's super simple in what it's trying to do, but there's going to be a ton of gameplay out of it. So this was definitely a big hit. I am. It's the saddest thing that I have for a weekend that was not sad at all. The only. It's really pretty much my only regret that I did not get to play that game because watching you play it, I was like, oh, this looks really yeah. interesting. And I was a little. And the, uh, two of the three people playing the game were a little too tired to be playing it because it's challenging in the same way that a good trick-taking game is. Right. Like you may need to be counting cards. You need to keep track of what you know, who's out of what suit in order to make the ideal play. So if you're enjoying that, you know, the head game of bridge mm-hmm. or teach you, this is really in that wheelhouse and it will be that demanding, but that's, what's going to be so excellent about it. So the crew keep an eye out for it when it is out. Uh, we'll be announcing it here on the podcast for sure, but uh, definitely a game that I want to get and play. And then the last game we played on Saturday night, once again was crystal palace. So why don't we get to it? Yep. Time to review Crystal Palace. Crystal Palace is a 2019 design. Duh. It is designed by Karsten Lauber. Karsten Lauber's basically second game he's ever designed. The first game he designed. uh, I've never, I don't know it. The artist is Andrea Alamano, which I believe is Italian for Andrea the German. And uh, it is a, let's, let's get into what the game is. It takes place during 1849, 1850, and eight, ending in 1851, the year of the very first World's Fair. Uh, Prince Albert and Queen Victoria. In London, right. Yeah. Correct. Yep. They transformed Hyde Park into a huge crystal palace, a glass and steel structure that was going to house the innovations of the very first World's Fair. It was... Crystal Palace was a negative term at first. It was a mark of derision. The people mocked what this was going to be. The Londoners did not care for it, or at least the newspapers and such would be slamming it. But by the time it actually came to pass, it was a huge success and spawned all but of yeah, the world's But yeah, you're in the world of these wonderful inventors and their inventions. And so like the these personalities are a big part of the game, as are their inventions that they're going to display as part of the World's Fair. This is the world you're in. The amazing thing about it is that you start with four dice. You have a maximum possible six dice of your color. You start with four dice. And at the very beginning of the game, you are told you, under your little box, you are going to choose what those four die values are going to be. And then you put your box down over it. Don't let anybody else see. 
The idea being, do you that roll these dice, Tom? You never roll these dice. <laughs> Unlike random games of chance, these dice are selected, and the number that you choose on the die is going to have a huge impact in terms of what you can do because a five is going to go ahead of a four, even if that five is placed way later than a four is on a particular space. There are spaces that mm-hmm. require a certain number to be able to even place a die there at all. There are places that will require a four or a three or even a two to be placed there. Otherwise, you cannot place a die there. So here's the way to think about the game for those listening home. This is a worker placement game. Your workers are the dice. The pips on the dice are your bids. You're going to be making a number of different, essentially, bids in different action spaces. You're going to pay for your pips. Yes. So, yes, you all of your dice can say six, but you're going to be spending 24 bucks in order to you know, place four, four sixes that way. So you can get more dice later on, as many worker placement games. But... Um, so a number of the, the worker spaces, there's like eight different sections of the board, and there's every single one of these spaces has almost like one more slot than will actually trigger. Yes, you it, can, four dice can go there, and three only will trigger. three are going to have any effect. And like the highest one often gets like some little bonus, Correct. and they generally choose first of the options there. The last one that gets in, ironically or not ironically or appropriately is actually you have to spend more money in order for it to trigger so you may have gotten in there cheaply but you'll end up paying more in the end and you tend to have the last choice in there but maybe that's still really good you start with 40 pounds and those 40 pounds boy oh boy they're going to be gone by turn two or turn three they're going to go fast and in order to to continue playing the game, you are going to have to get more pounds. You're going to have to take loans. And these loans right. are some of those brutal loans I've seen Martin in Wallace any game since Martin loans. Wallace. Yeah, other than the, just getting knocked out of the game. When you take a loan, you are going to, you have a pile of loans that are sitting on the minus five point. Uh, and you're going to take that loan and flip it over to the worst side of it, which is either going to be minus 8, minus 9, or minus 10 victory points. And for those minus 8, 9, or 10 victory points, you're going to get 10 lousy pounds. So, right. is, so even if you repay the loan, you've still incurred minus 5 points if later just the for the you, pleasure of, of taking the loan and that, that you can't get rid of. Nope. You ever. cannot get rid of it no matter what. So All you when, can do is mitigate you take that loan, yeah. at worst... The best case scenario, it's going to be worth a minus five point no matter what. So this game has this lovely kind of fun inventor and their inventions, World's Fair kind of theme, but it in fact is incredibly brutal and interactive where every single round you are placing your workers on these action spaces and other people like are actively trying to screw you out of your actions. <laughs> You're always wondering, will this be enough? Am I will this, you know, be able to do the thing I want it to do? How can I cheat Tom out of the thing that I know he wants <laughs> o- over here? So it um despite the 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 nice theme, it's it's like some of the got some of the brutal worker placement aspects of any game I've ever played. The game is a back alley tough that yes. is stabbing you in the face repeatedly in the darkness. It is, it's, it's kind of amazing. The choice of what numbers you are going to put on your four dice 
is one of the most delicious things that I have played in this year or in many, many years. Because I'm looking at my money, I'm looking at all of the various places that I can go, and there are nine locations that you can put dice on. Yeah. So the variety of choices that you can have are vast. And trying to guess what other people are going to pick. By the way, if you pay the most, if you pick the highest number of dice, you're going to go first as well. So another huge bonus. If you have the lowest number of dice, you're going to gain one newspaper, which is a minor uh, minor economy that happens in the game. There are several economies in the game, which we'll get to. Let's go over what the locations are where you can put these dice, though. There's the patent office. Patent office, you get patents. Patents are going to be fantastic inventions. And when you get them, they are going to, they don't cost anything to get. But in order to flip them over and make them, make prototypes yeah, you have a recipe them, that you have to complete, exactly. essentially. And the recipe almost always is going to cost a combination of light bulbs and gears. Getting light bulbs and gears is a pain. It is difficult to get enough of these things in order to be able to do the things that you want to do. One of the core things in this game is because it takes place over a number of years, the number of points you get for completing inventions or hiring inventors varies radically based upon when it happens in the game. And the vast majority of them are decreasing over the course of the game. Yeah, so, you, you're heavily rewarded for being able to get them out early, maybe more than any other game I've seen. Like the, your standard board European board game thing of like, you're going to build your engine early and then you're going to kind of convert it all to points at, at the end. This goes right in the teeth of that and kind of says, if you can get this stuff out early, they may never be able to catch you in this game. Yeah, this is this is sacrifice everything to get these early game points. Mm-hmm. Or build up an engine whereby you're going to be able to do more things later on, but at a point deficit, right? You're going to be able to do three inventions in turn three of the game, but guess what? Those three inventions are worth each half of what that one invention that you could have done early on and and trying to figure out how that works is very, very interesting. Next space is the British Museum, which allows you to grab research tiles. You have 12 or 16 tile spaces in the center of your own player board that are each worth minus two victory points at the end of the game if you don't fill them you can get research tiles that cover them. So at the very least, they're worth two points because they're, they're not doing that. But these research tiles also unlock other special abilities. You'll get things like add one to your income so that you're actually not going to starve to death and need to take huge loans or things like get gears or get a, or, or, or get a um, what's the word, a light bulb or things like that. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure we need to explain every single space here. I mean, some of them are pretty... Not st- standard. There's a lot of new stuff here. There's both. Yep. There's like a uh, uh, hype. What's the? There's a hype track or something. What is it? The buzz, buzz track. Yeah. Buzz like you got to build interest in, pe- right. in people. There's let's let's do it simpler. Then let's say that the two of the main ways to get points are by getting these patents and then making prototypes out of them mm-hmm. and getting famous personages yes. to to come and join you as well. Personages when you. Get them into your entourage, you must pay immediately. There is no, I get it, and later I have to pay for it. Not only that, you have to pay them continually over the course of the game. Right. The amount that you have to pay them varies by from person to person and varies by how fancy you are, how much influence <laughs> right. you have. There is another place called Westminster, and if you're in Westminster and get enough influence, guess what? 
these people don't require a lot of money to yeah, hang the fancier around you are the cheaper it is to keep famous people around you which is awesome not only that but these there is an interaction between the patents and the people right Levi Strauss is very interested in a couple inventions that are going to be here. Florence Nightingale is going to be interested in a couple things. Queen Victoria herself, you can get, boy. Oh, she, she is pricey. I thought She's a lot of them were like the inventors and their inventions. Is that not the case? It is not the case. It's the things that they're interested in seeing. So if you can put the, you know, the invention with the person who's curious about it, you get some bonus points. Four extra victory points per, uh, per synergy. And a lot of these guys, a lot of these people, I should say, men and women they did a very good job of not having it be a a, a solo gender game uh, <laughs> right they are uh, a lot of them will have two different inventions that they're on the lookout for which means and a lot of inventions will have two different personages yep. that are interested in that invention which is a very very interesting so there's, so there's a nice little game there where you can like pair some stuff up for some extra bonus points if you're paying attention yes so let's talk about the other the other things that are very interesting about this game newspapers newspapers you will gain from various actions one of the things that you'll gain is is that we said that sometimes when you go to a place first you're the first person in or you have the highest die you will get a newspaper or two newspapers newspapers is an economy as yeah. it goes up so it's like it's publicity which is different than buzz correct it's, yeah. it's publicity it's your it's currency you can spend you can yep. spend to get gears you can spend it to get money and you can spend it to get an extra die you can unlock that fifth or sixth die though as we found out getting that fifth or sixth die is not as great a thing you know generally in these yeah. games extra workers it's not exactly family growth thing. is it no it is it not. has some it, it has some drawbacks because you have to pay for that die and invariably what it means is you're recruiting another one because you're not going to be, you're going to have dice that are going to be ones because you're not going to be able to afford to have high pips on all of these dice, which is a really, really interesting thing. Uh, second thing is buzz. There is a buzz track that we have not only barely scratched the surface in our four plays of the, of the game, but Trey, you, you wailed on it once, once, which yeah. was, which was interesting. Um, getting ahead of those. First of all, there are points at the end of the game for first, second, and third place. They're not a lot of points, right. but they're but they're there. You have two assistants that you can put on the buzz track. Not assistants, but you have two yeah. sort of, you can stake your claim. The higher you get up, the more points the buzz track is going to be able to give you each and every uh, turn based on yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, buzz is another currency in the game that's kind of, it was pretty straightforward. I mean, um, the... There's a lot of really cool stuff in in here. A lot of stuff you have to combine. Uh, buzz is one of them. I'm not sure that that the like that the the buzz track is anything particularly fantastic about this game. Um, but there's a lot of different stuff going on, and that's one of them. And so it's just another thing to balance. Like the decisions in this game are really rich. Yes. And so if you are one of those people or groups that that is uncomfortable when players are taking a long time in order to just either here like deciding what how much you're going to spend on your dice or even when it's your turn what you're going to do if that is not something you enjoy in your gaming group this game is not for you because these are tough decisions and sometimes it's somebody's going to be just sitting there staring at the board for a minute uh i was literally bouncing up and down in my seat 
with the dice. With, uh, I've placed two, I've changed the numbers on two of my dice. I have no idea what I'm going to do with the other two. And I'm jumping up and down because I'm so excited about what a horrible, horrible decision that this game has forced me into. Right, because you're trying to program your entire round in your head when you are placing what what pips on your dice you're going to show. You're You're looking at what other people have done so far, guessing where they're going to need to go. And guessing how much they're going to spend for it because every die pick yeah. is because there's plenty of times you want to be like I want to spend the most money this round. Yes. I, w- I have to go first. Yes, I have to. Go- I may break me, but I have to go first. There is there is a space that I must go, and I must not only go there, but I must go first. Mm-hmm. I am going to have to spend a six. I'm going to have to to put one of my dice at a six to make sure that I that I get that no matter what. Most of the times in the game, you're like oh. I'm going to put a five down and I hope that it's going to get me what I need to get because I just can't afford to be spending spending money on these sixes. I just can't do it. Well, it's even the case that like when you put that five down, though, you're looking at everyone else's dice pool and a lot of times it's like Tom has the only six out there. Yeah. So, th- so there's only one person that can beat me with this five. And like I may need to sit on that five until he plays his six. Oh, if you can avoid it. I think the best one of the best ways to play is I'm putting in my ones first. Mm-hmm. Because there are very few spaces that you can put a one where you're not spending money to put it on that space. So again, this is just what Tom's talking about. It's just pointing towards the richness of the decisions that you are making constantly in this game. Uh, It also has the advantage of a lot of games that we like where because you've got four to six dice that you're placing every turn, um, you're rarely waiting long before it's your turn again. And And the things that are happening on other players' turns are of immense interest to you. Yes. Like, I think we have, as players, we have less and less patience for the, I took my turn, I can go, you know, get a soda for 15 minutes before it's my turn again, and then I can just kind of see what's happened and and take my turn. This is not that game. Consequential mini-actions. Consequential mini-actions. Yeah. uh, I would say that Matt Gertz with his Rondel systems are great at that. They're very, very small actions, but they're all meaningful and between five different mini actions, they add up to a full turn of, of momentous choices. Yeah. But the game is always flowing and always moving. As, as, as the play is going around the board, a lot of times, you know, somebody else take your eyeballing, like, please don't take that. Please don't take that. Okay. They took that. <laughs> and now you have to completely recalculate, you know, and, and like you're, you're, you're recalculating as everybody takes their, their turn all the way around. So I think the end result was you're just highly engaged and involved all the time, which is the hallmark of a really good oh, game. Trey has a five that he hasn't spent yet. And I have a three that I'm going to put down somewhere. And I realize that wherever I put that three, Trey could put the five after mine. And my guy not only not only goes later, but may in not many go cases, at all. Yeah. may not go at all. Right. You just spent $3 and you'll get $1 back because your die was worthless. Exactly. And the the opportunity cost of that is huge. And if that is not enough, (laughs) there is one other mechanism in the game, which is when you place a die in certain places, you unlock an assistant. Mm -hmm. You have six assistants. One of them is on your player board and can get a maximum of seven victory points for that. But that's not really what the assistant action is about. What the assistant action really is about is going to the black market. And the black market is just deliciously awful our- what, what demon designed this game <laughs> to create the black market mechanism in this this evil thing in the center that is, is so delicious it is so wonderfully awful <laughs> what it is is you place your uh, assistant in the lowest available space 
on the uh, on the black market. And at the end of the round, you are going to get the benefit that that space gives you, which these tend to be really up. efficient. These tend to be really efficient actions. Yes, they're they're nice because at the end of the round, each assistant is going to go down one space. The, After the they bottom get the guy is going to fall off of it, and everybody else goes down one. And the next round, they're going to get the next efficient benefit. But if you are not on the bottom two spaces, any of those other spaces, you can drop down one space. If that space is full, of course, you're going to have to drop down as far as you need to drop. And you can grab one of the gears. There are three gears in a four-player or five-player game that are available to you. Uh, gears are very hard to get in the game, so being able to drop just a little bit to grab a gear mm -hmm. is a great thing to do and a huge benefit. But that's not the most evil thing. Trey, what's the most evil thing about the black market? This The black market is perfectly marriages, uh, Mary's theme with mechanism here because it's a source of cheap resources, yep. highly efficient, as part of the game but as more and more people go there up to the point in which the market becomes completely full the illegal market gets busted and everyone is kicked out except the last except for person. the last person in <laughs> which creates an enormous kind of game of not chicken but impending doom oh kind of chicken well Definitely not 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 chicken <laughs> but like as it gets more full you kind of re realize oh this is this is going to get busted and there's one little space on the board <laughs> that allows you to do something very rare, which is put down two assistants. So like one person tends to be able to ruin everyone else's day. And, and who was that? I think, I think we broke the, I think we busted the black market twice. Well, our, you, you did and, and, and rightly so, but it's what it does is like, it's if you're greedy. Yes. Which I was. Yes. You get punished. <laughs> And so Horribly. like the illegality of the black market is kind of perfectly reproduced in the way um, this works. And when it happened to me in the first game, I got up and started to leave the room. I was so mad <laughs> that like I had invested so much in this and just watched it completely go kablooey. Um, but it's, it's actually a strength of the game that this that this thing exists. Um, I mean, there are so many more things. Your income drops by three every round of the game. And once oh, you yeah, get down to the... Oh, yeah, this has a lot of like Martin Wallace cruelty in its bones. Oh, you know, it like is. We're, we're, we're not just going to kill you in this game. We're going to in, you know make you a, a, a debt prisoner first. And let's say... Jennifer Schluckburn, our, our, our newest game brainer, the, the newest addition to our game brain team, Jennifer Schluckburn, played a game of it and hated it. Yeah. Oh, she was like, I hate games that are mean to players, and this is the meanest game that I have ever played. This is horrible. She was she was just. Now, yeah, I'm way, eager to hear more from her on this. Yeah, Go I'm ahead. sure we will. But this was this was at the end of her con. This was way way late in the, in, in the week. She had been playing games nonstop, and we're all a little fried. Yeah, she hated it she went on facebook and posted <laughs> right. i just played this and the very first post she is let's put it this She's, way she is a game veteran she yep. has she is she has a lot of really very well connected really yes. well connected the first reply post from for her post saying how much she hated uh, uh, crystal palace was from Vita lacerda <laughs> and Vita lacerda's reply was for me it's the game of the year yeah game of 2019 for me so yeah. so there you go it just shows that it is not for everybody if it, it, because what she's what she's got her finger on is that it is a game that is punishing yep. at the end of the game if you've played very well you probably have minus 20 points in score there's probably minus 20 points on your board or more 
and you're going to win the game. So you have to wrap your head around that. You have to wrap your head around the idea that you have to be comfortable with debt. You have to be comfortable with... Yeah, with there's a razor's play. edge of solvency that you're balancing in this game that's not unlike Age of Steam. Mark's One of Mark's games, he got up to 130, 140 points and had minus 70 points. <laughs> debt, yeah. He had, he, his score was cut in half. He, he did not win that game. He played a He high, tried something. He, he, played explored, a high he explored the space. He played a high pip game. Yep. We had another player that played with us, and one round, she had five dice, and she put them all at one. She tried to go cheap. All ones. That did not work as well. No, she ended, still that, ended up spending a ton of money. really, really bad. Yeah, so, Razor's Edge. You can't go too expensive. You can't go too cheap. It, um, you got to find that, that, that equilibrium uh, every turn, and it's, and it's very hard. Is there going to be a turn where we talk about the negative things of this game? Not really. I mean, what what we just said is is true. Well, I have which a negative. Is, this I have is some not for everybody. The, Go ahead. I mean, ahead. it's not, and it's not just the complexity. I I think that this game is a, a real um, step forward or new. Feel, feels new in terms of like worker placement. Like the way they're doing this exactly feels like worker placement. Like I haven't experienced before, and it's and it's done it really well. I don't know if this game um, ultimately is. Like the cards were especially well designed. I, I could use I could use more there. Yeah, I agree with yeah, that. Yeah, like the thing I like is are, are the core mechanisms. I'm not sure the implementation of the actual cards works out exactly right. I will need more plays, but like one of the things is like the way the, the inventors and the and the uh, inventions or the personalities and the inventions match up. Like the deck's too thick. So you don't know if those things are going to pay off as well. Some cards just seem to be a lot better than others, which is generally fine because we are absolutely in an auction mechanism place where, like, that you can let the auction ba- balance things out. Well, I got I got one particular person that was very interesting. That There's some was, broken that stuff. He gives you six dollars if you have no income, right? Basically, which. Basically, there's a few there's a few game breakers. It makes there. it so that you can sit down there. I'm not sure it breaks the game, but it does allow a strategy that otherwise you cannot pursue. Well, some some of the cards are just boring. Like there was, t- we had one game where we got to the final round, and there were like no good point scorers on the board between the inventions and the personalities, and that seemed weird. Well, th- sometimes you you hit a lot of synergies in a game where you're getting the person. Oh, oh my goodness, this is the invention that I've been waiting for. I have two different guys that both get points based on this thing. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes you have the wonderful thing where I have one personality that needs this invention. You have the other personality, and now we're fighting over it. Some games it just doesn't pan out because the decks are large enough that yeah. those things aren't always going to come out. But like you, you, we play plenty of games where they structure the decks so you have like age one, age two, age three, and through the ages, for example, so that you have this kind of, you know, accelerating um, card demands that that you that you have to fulfill. This doesn't do that. Like mm. the deck's the deck, and it's going to come out the way it's going to come out. Like we had one game where I felt like, oh, we have all these resources in the end. We're all ready to score a bunch of points, and like the the contracts essentially, the targets for our resources just weren't there yep. in the in the final round. So I I don't know if this game ultimately is going to be like this fine tuned gem, but the the underlying mechanisms and bones of the game are pretty spectacular. I, I think we just need to, to get to the end of this because we're running out of time. Yep. I will say this. Uh, before I played Crystal Palace, I thought the epitaph of 2019 would be there is Barrage and there is everything else. Like mm. Barrage for me was, was such a hit. 
And there were a lot of other games that I liked, but no other game that I truly loved like Barrage. Now I can safely say that there are two amazing games this year. Crystal Palace, it's... I... I'm wondering, I, it, I, the more I played it, at first I was like, oh, this is clearly my number two game of the year after right. like the second play. Yeah. Now after four plays, I'm in the range of... It's in the discussion. It's, it's in discussion. Yeah. It really, really is. It's, it's an amazing game. I highly recommend. It is about to come out uh, just about everywhere. Um, any day now, really, it'll, they'll, they'll start shipping. I think they've they've done their uh, fulfillments already or in process, and I think uh, uh, your online game stores are getting this game this week. So uh, run, don't walk. Uh, if 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 what we're talking about sounds, if you're not afraid about a game that's ready to punish you, um, if you're not afraid about a game that is mean, uh, <laughs> jump jump on this. Jump if on you this. like this podcast. <laughs> Um, we are running out of time, big time, but we do want to say a couple more things, some general takeaways and some things in, in general about the, the con. First of all, we wore our wonderful Game Brain t-shirts with us uh, pretty much every day. They got a little stinky toward the end, but we, we did yep. wear them. Uh, and every day of the con, we ran into fans of the podcast. And that's a new thing for us. And we were very, 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 very happy. We, we found some uh, amazing. Yes, really we want to nice encourage people. this. Yes. If you see the blue t- t-shirt, please come up, say yes. hi. Tickle Trey. That's what we say. That nobody says that. Nobody says that. Uh, who, who, can you can you name some of the people that we? Yeah. Uh, well, so so some of the, some of the people we met on this was we met uh, Amanda Bennett. Yes. We met Blake Martin. They came over while we were playing Crystal Palace and checked out the game. We got a picture. I think we're we'll, if you go to our our Facebook uh, group, you'll yes. see you'll see these pictures. Um, uh, my we made friends with uh, Benjamin Yamada. He was also at Tabletop Network with me, and his wife Elizabeth uh, listens to the podcast. Yeah, we played uh, we played Marco Polo two with him. Mm-hmm. That, that was a lot of fun. Elizabeth is uh, follows us because she grew up with Laura Darlington, Alfred Al- Alfred Darlington, whoever that is. Um, she so she started watching the podcast. We played a game with Monty Bingham. And uh, also Xavier Williams. Xavier Williams. It was a really fun playing Taverns of Diefenthal with him. He was a he was a, a blast. So it was good. It was nice to to like actually hear that there actually are people listening to this. <laughs> there really are people around the country who listen to the podcast. Um, and so it was great to hear back from them. Uh, and then general takeaways. Let's, let's quickly go through what we generally feel. First thing I will say is that um, multiplayer solitaire is the rule of the day. We, we played a lot of very interesting games right. that were essentially multiplayer solitaire. A lot of designers seem to be backing away from mechanics in which my choice alters what your choice is. Um, there were a lot of action selection mechanisms that that were acting as though they were worker placement, but they did nothing to deny anybody else anything. And um, this seems to be a trend, yes. and it's not one I think that we're necessarily happy about. Correct. But we played a lot of games that did that this weekend, so yep, they're coming. Number two, so that that's number one. Our kind of takeaways from BGGCon. Uh, number two was. Uh, what we'll call the the baroqueness yes. of a lot of these games. I thought we were moving uh, in in kind of game design and in the market towards simplification and elegance. 
as kind of the the, the standard. And I, I think we are still seeing that be a goal of a lot of designers, but maybe we've seen a kind of a bifurcation of like games that are going to expand the market or expand to, you know, less hardcore gamers. And then there are plenty of designers who are embracing the more hardcore elements of the hobby and are producing more and more complex games. Which I, I I don't think it's is a positive or a negative. I just it, yeah it is. Yeah, I'm kind of happy that that everything isn't getting just just simpler. I, I'm yeah. I'm very happy that that the Beatles of the world are out there. Yeah, on Mars was probably the 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 biggest example of of this of just like there's a lot of games out there that are going to be big teaches. I want mad geniuses. I yeah. want mad geniuses in the hobby. I don't want to play. I don't want to play a mad genius game every single week. But I'm very, very happy that they're that they're there and they're doing that. Well, sometimes in my mind, you know, in some my my mind, uh, mad genius can mean elegance, though. It can mean keep keeping it sure. simple rather than having to have a you know a seventy minute teach, which it seemed like some of these kind of do. But that's happening. Remember, there's just an observation that's happening. There's sure. no shortage of highly complex board games uh, coming out. And then the uh, the third trend I was again I don't know if this is the right word for it but we seem to encounter a lot of games that have kind of a chronicle aspect which is that there's some core game mechanics there and then you're going to play multiple scenarios maybe this is the gloom havenish havening of the industry or something but even like the card game uh, the crew like you, you need the little book many different many different aspects I, I think it's basically getting toward game extension. I think mm-hmm. is really what it's about. It's about taking these medium weight games that are not going to to have a tremendous amount of longevity, and then the designers figure out ways to okay, now try it with this with this little add on. Try it with this rule change. Try it with this new board or this new essence or this new element. Um, I, I think that's a really good thing. I think it's it's great when designers think about what is the tenth play going to be like. What is the twentieth play going to be like? Mm-hmm. Um, listen. The greatest games don't need to have a chronicle element in order to have it be playable hundreds of right. times. And um, this isn't Legacy. This is no. a slight difference than Legacy, but it might be like the second generation of Legacy because Legacy is not possible in so many things. But scenarios kind of are. And yeah. if, if I, some people I know are still measuring their like value of a board game in terms of number of plays they get. I don't tend to do that, but a lot of people do. So, like being able to extend the life of a board game through this, you know, mechanism might make a lot of sense. Certainly not bad. Certainly not bad. And lastly, let's just say I this was my first uh, BGG Con, and mm-hmm. I had a blast. I had a blast with you, Trey. I had a blast with our friend Mark. And uh, this met is a lot of people. Yeah. Really, really did. Just uh, I didn't meet a disagreeable person the entire the entire weekend. It was just a blast. If you it, right, if you are looking for the convention in which you are just going to go and play board games and play more board games and then play some more board games, it's not Gen Con. Nope, it's nope. this. It's, it is it's, this. It's, it's, it's BGG Con. And so, if you are that person, uh, you should definitely be checking out BGG Con. And they, you know, like we said, they're doing them a couple times a year, plus the cruise. So it's in the center of the country. Yeah. And I want to thank you for urging me to come because I, uh, you had been to one before. I had never been to this con before. And I am so happy. My, my life is, is uh, uh, more rich for having gone. And I look forward to going again. Uh, we are available on social media. 
We are we have a Facebook group. Uh, just look up Game Brain on Facebook, and you will find us. It is a very very fun uh, community that we have there. We're also available on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash c forward slash Game Braid Brain uh, Pod. And uh, you've been listening to Game Brain, produced and edited by Matthew Robinson and Tom Donnelly. Special thanks to Daedalus for our incredible music, the rules lawyer for those in the know. More on Daedalus at GameBrainPod.com. You can also reach us by email at our brand new email, contact at GameBrainPod.com, or on Twitter at GameBrain underscore pod. Thanks for listening, everybody, and go play some games with friends. Or go make some games. (laughs) Okay, make some friends with games. (laughs) Thanks.